This is episode 192 of Alohomora for May 28th, 2016. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Alohomora. Uh, we hope you've brought your cackling stumps and hopping pots because it's week two of Beetle, actually, which we'll be talking about one of those stories. I'm Eric Skull. I'm Allison Sigurd. I'm Michael Harley, and our guest today is the absolutely lovely Colleen Daw. <laughs> Colleen, can you say hello to all of our listeners out there? Hi, hello, Hamora listeners. I'm Colleen. Um, yeah. <laughs> Tell them all about yourself and where, how you got into Harry Potter. And, and, and you had told us a, a great little piece about um, what you do uh, on, on your audition, and I, I would love it if yeah. you shared that with our listeners. Yeah, well, um, as far as Harry Potter, I got into it, uh, wow, I remember bringing it for, like, personal reading time in second grade, so that was probably, oh, like, goodness. 2000, yeah, so that nice. was a while ago. <laughs> um, I am a Hufflepuff, at least the first time I took the Pottermore test, I took the new one, and oh. I was a Slytherin, which is very weird Ooh. to me. And so I think I've like talked it over with people. And so like I can kind of fall into the Slitherpuff identity, but I'm definitely like Hufflepuff with Slytherin tendencies. I'm nice to everybody, but if you insult me, I'm going to get mad <laughs> and I'm going to get, yeah, I'm going to come back to even. <laughs> yeah. Um, and as far as what I do, uh, two weeks ago, I graduated uh, from uh, my master's program. I have a master's in library science. Yay! Yay! That warms and my like, heart as a fellow librarian. <laughs> so ooh, that's ooh. very exciting to Me hear. Me and my friends joke that we're part of a cardigan army. Yes, you are. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but then my master's paper focused on uh, fan materials. I'm an archivist. And so I was making an argument as to why fan materials should be included as kind of um i'm losing my words but as part of an archival collection to give context to their source materials and i looked at fan podcasts now i looked at star wars not harry potter but like a lot of fan websites and stuff like that so it was a lot of fun that's super <gasps> cool i think that's so mm -hmm. neat to think that i think that's a really neat idea that i i've never really seen presented in academia that that fan contributions to all of these different fandoms should be something that we should be archiving and keeping safe too. I think that's yeah. a wonderful idea. So yeah, There's like a whole group that's advocating for it. So that's like a lot of fun. <laughs> that's fantastic. I mean, we would, we would love to know that, mm -hmm. that Alohomora is safe in the archives of history. That would be very <laughs> yeah. comforting to us. That would be really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, with Star next, Wars... next, to getting, next to getting shot in space. Yeah. <laughs> that, would be, that would be pretty yeah. cool. Well, with Star Wars, the reason I picked them is because Lucasfilm has an active archive and they are like coordinating with fan communities. Mm, and that's so, right. Like, if Harry Potter has an equivalent archive, like if JK all of a sudden or like the studio uh, tours, if they have an attached archive, that would be a really cool area to start gathering fan materials. You kind of need that home base and that cooperation between the fans or between like a university in order to make that work. You heard that studio tour and J.K. Rowling. <laughs> Kali Ka is looking. Make it happen. She is, she is ready and willing to leap into your archivist position for fandom. Yeah, looking for one. Please hire me. I'm really good. <laughs> 
But we're glad, we're very glad to have you on this episode, Colleen. Aw, thank you. Uh, we mentioned at the top of the show, but uh, we are continuing our discussion of Beetle the Bard this week. Hope everybody enjoyed last week's two stories that we delved into. And this week, we will be doing The Warlock's Harry Heart Ooh. and Babbity Rabbity and Her Cackling Stump. <laughs> like the perfect so uh, the perfect opposites of stories really, <laughs> <laughs> really though <laughs> they are they are yeah in a way i i, I like these two paired together yes yeah. um, be. but uh but please be sure uh listeners to uh, read those two stories they're short um and sweet um before continuing uh because that's just that's just you'll get more out of it that way but before we move on to our discussion we want to make sure and mention that this episode is sponsored by Charles Kellier on Patreon. Yay, Charles Kellier. Thank you so Yay. much for helping us out with this episode. We, thank you, Charles. We always love to give a shout out to our sponsors on Patreon. And you, yes, you, listener, can become a sponsor <laughs> for as little as a dollar a month on Patreon. And if you do, we will continue to release exclusive tidbits for sponsors on our Patreon. We've already released things like a uh, exclusive reading by me of the Tales of Beetle the Bard, and Rosie has just recently released a, her own reading of the Twelve Dancing Princesses, um, which you can have access to on Patreon since we talked about that last week in relation to Beetle the Bard. So check us out. And you can find us at patreon.com slash alohomora. And again, you can donate at just as much as little as a dollar a month uh, to help us out, keep the show going, and doing some special new perks for the show. Uh, well, without further ado, let's get into... The Warlock's Hairy Heart. It's <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> um, guys, this is this is cards on the table time. This is my favorite uh, of Beetle the Bard tales. Is any, is this anybody else's favorite of the tales? Uh, I really like Babbity Rabbity. I'm excited to talk about it later, but this is a close oh, second. Okay. And also, Michael, did you read this to children? Yes, I did. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> you monster! So there's there's I'm just a video like horrified four year olds. <laughs> well, there was a video that I did for uh, that actually was a was a previous perk for Alohomar. We might have to put that up again somewhere. Um, where I actually I sang for we did it we did a special late night at the, we we had a special late night at the library after hours event at the library I used to work at back in Al and uh, Rio Rancho in Albuquerque, and. Uh, uh, we had me and my co-librarian put it, put together all of what we did for the evening, and I sang in one in the, one, the video that I released for Alohomora. I sang one of Celestina Warbeck's songs um, for the kids, so that's on video. <laughs> I remember that. Yes, but I also thought it would be fun to read them the Wardlock's Harry Heart because and and my co-librarian at the time, Vonda, she was all for it. She was just like, "Yeah, that's terrifying. Totally read it to them." And mm -hmm. I did. And the funny thing was, I think the language was just a tad above them. So, so it didn't really sink in? No, it didn't. Like, the, the one thing that caught their attention was when I when it got to the end and I revealed that the the fate of the poor princess, the little girl's eyes kind of widened and they were all Aww. like, she's dead? And I was like, yep, she's dead. <laughs> so, but, and then I just snapped the book shut and I said, and no one lived happily ever after. And then, <laughs> oh my gosh. 
So, because what fun is Halloween without just a little bit of a scare? And it is. Oh, it was Halloween. Oh, it was. Okay. It was just yeah, before Halloween. I just thought it was Halloween normal story. Time. I thought it was just a normal yep. Tuesday at the library. Michael scaring children. No, no, yeah. it, was, it was for the scary times. But, but yeah, I think it's probably uh, yeah. better suited for maybe a middle school audience as far as yeah. giving them a spook. I know. I know. We're gonna get into the story before we get into Dumbledore's notes on the story, yes. mm-hmm. which are uh, included in this wonderful edition yeah. of Beetle the Bard. Um, thanks, Hermione and Dumbledore. <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I I I know in that it is stated that uh, that this uh, story is for sort of an older age to begin yep. with, and some children in the Wizarding World aren't even told this story because it is scary. And I'm not sure if this is my favorite story of them all because it is dark mm. um but i i do kind of just like in general the themes and the the actions and this, the way the story unfurls so yeah um, i'd i'd say this because th- my favorite story as i mentioned last week is actually the fountain of fair fortune um mm. because Ooh. i think the twists in it are very clever and the moral i really like but i i think warlock's hairy heart would be a second for me because it's What's what's interesting is with Beetle, to me, I kind of feel like with these five stories, even though Beetle is one person, these five stories all strike very different tones and they almost all feel like they could have been done by very different writers in the wizarding world. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. definitely the Warlock's Harry Heart, I'd say, is one of the more... It, it definitely fits that kind of gothic horror kind of poem like feel um it has more of a lyrical musical quality to it than the other ones do i think that sets it apart too well i you know i'm glad you mentioned uh earlier scaring children uh (laughs) with the uh with the princess's death because she's actually so she is not a princess and the uh gentleman uh at the center of this story is not a prince Mm -hmm. but in the traditional way that we think of fairy tales they might as well they kind of are right yeah yeah the story begins not with a once upon a time, and it does not end with a uh, they lived happily ever after, because as you pointed out, nobody lives. <laughs> <ever>. Nobody <laughs> lives. <laughs> but it it it, there, 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 it does begin. There was once, using mm-hmm. that word, mm-hmm. a handsome, rich, and talented young warlock. Mm-hmm. So this warlock, who may as well be a prince, mm-hmm. uh, because he does have many servants attending his every need, and a castle which he lives in. Uh, you know, it's kind of very easy to see uh, the fairy tale aspects of the premise. I know. I was going to say, as you were reading that, I'm already hearing in my head just like the... David Ogden voice just being like, once there was a prince in a castle. There is totally Beauty and the Beast vibe. Yeah. Uh, oh my God, of, so much. Of, oh, much Beauty of and this. Beast. Now, you know, I actually, in researching this discussion and prepping, I looked up the original uh, Beauty and the Beast stories. It turns out there's actually two of them. One was like drastically changed, but that one was more mm-hmm. popular. Yeah. But both of them, I have to say the Disney movie probably has the most in common with what I'm thinking of when I'm reading this. Mm-hmm. Um just in terms of the, the the premise of this prince who's who's dark and living alone, uh, and emos. has servants, <laughs> yeah. and he emos. Yeah, but and um, he, 
Oh gosh. <laughs> this, uh, but yeah, so so he's this not a prince and this not a princess are about to meet. And they have a fate ahead of them, so let's talk more about it. But this warlock uh, decides early on, and this is in the first paragraph uh, of the story, that he uh, does not want to be weakened by love. The story says, The young warlock resolved never to fall prey to such weakness uh, and employed dark arts to ensure his immunity to... Uh, his friends, who he's, he observed growing foolish when they fell in love. So this is an interesting uh, beginning to this story, I think. Mm-hmm. And it reminds me a lot of uh, just different stories here and there, but those who see love as a weakness trying to stamp it out, or, for instance, I, one of the shows I watch often is Game of Thrones, Oh really? Yeah, <laughs> yes. never would have guessed. And there's a the eunuch character, uh, Lord Varys, is very very high in power, um, but he attributes that to his not pursuing a romantic relationship hmm. um, from an early age. So he kind of you know being distracted by love can be a weakness, um, and you know it's not too different from I think what this warlock is trying to accomplish. Yeah. Yeah, the, mm-hmm. it's it's interesting that we, I think, because we were talking even before the show that we all saw the the parallel to Beauty and the Beast, but this is kind of the part where, and I think in a, in a way this whole story does this, but this is like a warped version of Beauty and the Beast because of course yeah. the goal in Beauty and the Beast for the prince is that he needs to learn to love, but this prince. Mm. It's all it, it it's almost like the goal would be the same that he does need to mm-hmm. learn to love but he is so adamantly pushed love away like there's no there's no evil fairy to curse him because he is the prince and the evil fairy in one like right. it's like if the beast wanted to stay the beast and he's like oh, no, yes. I'm not going to fall in love I'm just going <laughs> to keep this really scary physique and stay super powerful you guys, I am ripped right now. <laughs> <laughs> Why would I have to change this? Yes. Why would I ruin that with a wife and children? Uh, <laughs> he has an eight-pack. He's shredded. <laughs> He's a warlock, man. He's powerful. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a reading reading through. There's a lot of connections to to other stories that we make. I know we've gone heavy on the on the Beauty and the Beast stuff, but yeah. another one I thought of was uh, the warlock. So so he resolves never to to love. And years pass, his parents uh, die, so he gets the castle all to himself. And things are going really well. He's congratulating himself on the wisdom of his <laughs> early choices until he encounters these two uh, serving persons. These serving persons, yes. These serving persons. It's actually I would that was that was a generous term because the book calls them calls them lackeys. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the book doesn't mention uh, that, but one of them is totally a candelabra and the other one is a clock. Yeah, one of clock. them is or totally going along, yeah. or going along yeah. the Disney theme, the little like goblins from Sleeping Beauty. Yes, there we go. Yeah. Those are definitely lackeys. Or that no, it's the uh it's the demons from Hercules. Yeah. Yes. yes. Thank you, Allison. I was just thinking of that. Yes, thank oh, you. Oh pain and panic. Um, yeah. yeah. So, Regardless, these two servants, so the first one pities him because he was loved by no one. Mm. Uh, and this actually, this this part does not really fall 
on the warlock at all. He doesn't really care mm-hmm. about the first guy. Mm-hmm. It's the second guy who holds his interest. But the first guy, pitying him because he's not loved at all, really reminded me of A Christmas Carol. Uh, mm-hmm. And Scrooge, uh, both in uh, at his uh, is it his cousin's uh, Christmas party, overseeing with the ghost of Christmas present. Uh, oh, yeah. Who mm-hmm. they play that game, and it's like I'm an unloved creature, and it's like, oh, I'm Ebenezer Scrooge, mm-hmm. um, and they all have a good laugh because nobody loves him, and Scrooge, unlike the warlock, is is touched and yeah. hurt, and al- also uh, in the future, of course, my biggest uh um knowledge of uh christmas carol comes from the muppet version i'm afraid Um, (laughs) it's a good version uh, it's a good version but in in general the the, uh the when they're giving away all his stuff after he's passed and uh and Mm -hmm. there's just you know the whole the whole death sequence you know there's nobody there to love him and nobody there to stand for him because he's hated so that that really that really kind of i feel really i love this first servant in this in this story who's just you know I pity him because because he's loved by no one. That that really touches me. Mm-hmm. Isn't that so? You, that's also that goes along with Dumbledore. I was just going to say know? that. That's almost yeah. a direct mm-hmm. quote from Dumbledore. Pity those who do not live, who live without love. See, and we had we had suggested last week that with uh, the I, I believe it was with the Fountain of Fair Fortune that there was. There was a line in, or there was the the idea in the Fountain of Fair Fortune that you use that there are more painful things than blood because uh, as the 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 three women in in that story have to have to pay their kind of dues to the the creatures in the in the garden mm-hmm. with um, mm-hmm. uh, memories, sweat, and tears, and we tied that into how. Uh, Voldemort asked for payment in blood and Half-Blood Prince to enter the cave and how Dumbledore said, oh, there are worse things to, you know, sacrifice than blood. And Mm -hmm. we thought, did Dumbledore... Like, are there... We were wondering if there weren't things in the the Tales of Beetle the Bard that Rowling put in there retroactively that were meant to inform some of the things Dumbledore says in the series. (gasps) Oh, I totally believe that. Like, this story in particular, I was reading it. Like, yeah. in addition to Beauty and the Beast, it was, like, Voldemort in all caps, bolded. Like, this <laughs> yeah. guy is oh, basically yeah. the... He is Voldemort. And I can just... I have, like, this picture in my head of Dumbledore, like, going back through these stories. I, like, can almost see him, like, dropping the book. Like, oh, my God, this is exactly his psyche and how he mm. thinks and how unaffected he is by love. Like, I think of that last scene in The Deathly Hallows where... He doesn't even believe Harry that like love is the answer. He's like mocking him just because he doesn't believe that it's that powerful. Well, clearly, I mean, I know Merope died giving birth to him, but I was mm-hmm. going to say nobody ever read him this story. No. <laughs> it's, no. It's it's a pretty good cautionary tale all the same yeah. just like the other the other tales. Well, I think um, that's just exciting to think about in terms of especially we were and we were talking about this too before the we began recording proper, but you know, a lot of the fandom, I, I think, and we've realized this by kind of looking at the comments. And by the way, listeners, we really do appreciate. Thank you for leaving comments l- last week. Um, we'll be getting back to recap comments once we go back into topic discussions. But we really appreciate kind of seeing the thoughts you guys left behind. And many of those were related to, oh, wow, I've never read Beetle before. Or I only read it once and didn't think much of it. And... I think what's been really cool already with these two episodes is we've discovered that these these stories 
really complement. I think out of all three of the school books, this one might complement the series the best. Oh yeah. Oh, definitely. It runs along with the themes of the series. the The other two are more just like world expansion kind of yeah. things, but this one more is running on themes and beliefs and almost those like sociological ideas that are running through this this, this one has this book has the benefit of being written after yes yes there is that the other ones were written after book four yeah um Mm -hmm. so when the series was only half over over. um kind of like tied fans over yeah yeah but i i would definitely agree with what what everyone's saying about this book in general and i know i i think it's very intentional uh to have this book in part inform the previous works because she has again getting back to Dumbledore commentary but we'll talk about that later Mm -hmm. um he specifically says things that are meant to influence like what he said before Mm -hmm. um well and there's even I think JKR even annotates something where it's like yeah this is why he felt that way in the books mm -hmm. so well and it was cool because we got a comment actually last week from um, our regular listener Snape's many buttons who actually had a really neat thought which was it occurs to me that there will be kids who grow up listening to the tales of Beetle the Bard and when they get old enough to read Deathly Hallows they will relate to Ron when he is surprised that Harry and Hermione haven't yeah. heard of Beetle and these other yeah. stories so yeah. there's the possibility that future generations oh, could read so Beetle awesome. <laughs> first or read Beetle in the middle of the series and before you know Hallows. What? I'm I'm gonna experiment uh, with my friends who have a newborn because <laughs> How how quickly do we read, you know, Harry Potter to our kid? I'm gonna say don't. Just read Beetle. <laughs> yeah. Up until they're like eleven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like one, once a month for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. These function just as well as yes. reading fairy tales to a child. They they it's yeah. Make it one of their bedtime stories. <laughs> Make it happen. So so let's get back to it. These uh these these lackeys. Uh, these servants, the first one who pities the warlock because nobody loves him, is brushed aside because the second warlock really gets to him. The second <laughs> warlock suggests that, or the second, the second servant suggests that the warlock is unable to attract a wife, and so it's almost on a bet uh, that the warlock could, if he wanted to, have a companion. So after all these years, and it's been the talk of the town. He, he's not interested, he pushes away, you know, all these women, decides and resolves that he's going to get one, not to love, but to have, but to essentially to, to still to have, yeah. and to have what everyone else has, and also so that everyone with a heart who's busy ogling and mm-hmm. getting weak about each other, then begin to envy him even further and and he's gonna get the best wife that there is. He's gonna uh, he's gonna, he's gonna get one who far surpasses every all the other wives. Oh look, another woman in a story killed by a fragile male ego. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's yeah. True. and that's spoiler alert. Jeez, uh, Alice. Well, isn't it? Sorry. It's it's. I thought it was funny that the the warlock is like. Not only will she have like great magical power but even though i'm filthy rich she's also gonna be filthy rich but i don't even need her to be filthy rich i just want Again, her does anybody else think of bellatrix <laughs> he's like, yeah yeah, yeah, he's, oh, yeah he's like, i go. don't i don't want a single like uh discomfort in this whole pairing yes um at all whatsoever uh, so that his lifestyle of being pampered essentially all day can yeah. remain the same i mean to be fair 
the his his idea of love isn't really totally out there for the time that he mm-hmm. was living in. Um, oh, not at all. He's. I, I think what makes it surprising is because what we got from the introduction is that Dumbledore discusses in his notes and Rowling discusses in her intro that Beetle was kind of ahead of his time and that the story in the stories he wrote gave women very strong roles and that mm. the wizarding world yeah. isn't very fussed yeah. about gender roles because they they are more fussed about blood status um mm. than they are about uh gender and sexuality so it's it's kind of funny that in that way while this tale has a very non-traditional ending for a fairy tale like this in our sense at the same time there's some very traditional ideas about marriage and kind yeah. of how a relationship should be in in this in in this world in, of this particular fairy tale i think that's what also really sets it apart from the other ones in beetle's book too mm-hmm. it's a little uh and you, you, you know i saw you mentioned too eric kind of some references to the greeks because yes. this the greeks had a very i i watched and i'm gonna reference her again like i frequently do on this show listeners um my favorite internet reviewer the the nostalgia chick as she was once named her real name is Lindsay ellis um and she uh currently does a series of videos called uh loose canon where she takes a character um and analyzes how they've been interpreted over the years and she recently did a video about aphrodite uh the goddess of love and (laughs) and she um she kind of broke down how the greeks actually had three different ideas of love like categories of love yeah Yeah. and the idea of love that like they did they just didn't understand love the way we do today so the way that aphrodite is interpreted frequently is incorrect because she doesn't match she matches with our current idea of love but in back in the times that's not what she was she was meant to rep, represent what we consider to be a passionate love but the greeks considered borderline madness yeah. yeah um and so the this warlock in the story is very much reflecting an idea of the greeks that passionate love is madness and that mm-hmm. you don't and it's not desirable to have passionate love um the best mm-hmm. kind of love eros is i believe the passionate love i can't remember the name of the love that's kind of like the love uh, between equals or friends or something like that isn't isn't eros like physical love it's like sexual love isn't it yeah there, there's like is there and like then, familial and romantic and and then there's yeah. agape which is just unconditional which one is unconditional yeah. agape agape yeah okay yeah, yeah. But, uh, but you know, all this talk about love, uh, it's time to enter the princess. The not princess oh, yeah. princess. <laughs> she is the maiden. Mm-hmm. She is described as a witch of prodigious skill and possessed of much gold. Mm-hmm. So she's rich and powerful, um, but apparently pure. Mm. So, uh, much in the realm of a loveless uh, pairing or marriage, mm-hmm. uh, Michael, like you were saying, her family uh, kind of agrees and puts her with the warlock. She's kind of intrigued uh, by him, but also 
it's I believe you, one could make the argument, although I don't think it's directly stated. Like it is her purity that allows her to see that there's just something a little off with this guy. Mm-hmm. She and unfortunately she does not pay attention to her excellent women's intuition. That is her downfall. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the intuition is, well, I think the curiosity kind of rules out. Um, he's well-versed in poetry, rather stealing the words that others have written. I love that. Uh, yeah. It's written in this book. He's pulling a Serrano yeah. de Bergerac. He he's just stealing other people's words. Clever guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, without, a real, without a real sense of... Or without be, because he's never loved, yeah. he doesn't he doesn't know how they how they feel. But but actually, what what this uh, stood out to me as um, with the the the, the maiden uh, here is like kind of when the hairs stand up on the back of your neck. That's like an evolved defense mechanism. Like the hairs that stand up on the back of your neck. That's a natural, as basic as it gets, like fear thing from when we were being hunted. Um, you know, in some, yeah. in some previous... Well, I mean, that sounded completely ridiculous, but <laughs> well, no. it's, it's a defense mechanism. But, she, but that's uh, right. She's being hunted in in a way in this in this story. You know, and this, yeah. this is why this, again, brings up Beauty and the Beast because actually it's, it's interesting you said, Eric, that you feel that you see more connections with the Disney version because I think this right here, she functions in this story almost exactly as Belle or as beauty rather functions in the original tale because because isn't it is it the story like she doesn't even look at the beast yeah for like most of her time staying with him because she's so scared of him yeah she's very put off by him and she has in in the original version that in the version that disney based their version off of she she has dreams about the beast as a prince begging her right. to to pair to to get yeah. together with the beast mm-hmm. um and she doesn't make the connection but she's she doesn't but she i think the i guess the big distinction to make is that be- the beauty in the original story does eventually succumb to stockholm syndrome bell yeah. In yep. Beauty and the Beast, the Disney version, does not succumb to Stockholm Syndrome because she does not mm-hmm. sympathize with the Beast until he does something nice for her, until he saves her life. And there's a reciprocation. Until he starts to change. Yes, yeah. until he starts to change. So, And I think that's why the Disney version tends to be more popular than the original version of the tale. Because it, right, it an, almost puts them on equal footing. Yes, there's an update yeah. to that idea of love again. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and, and it's interesting that you mentioned the dreams, uh, mm-hmm. because that's sort of like an unconscious thing, just like the hairs in the back here. You know, like that's yeah. kind of like a, you know, her mind is, is trying to figure something out, mm-hmm. you know, it, she doesn't consciously know something just like until the warlock takes the maiden down to the dungeon. Yeah. She doesn't know what it is that's off about him. Mm-hmm. And once we get, I can't, yeah, I'm excited to get to that part because, that that's kind of where the beauty and the beast allegory hits its strongest peak and then completely falls apart they have a party and everyone's invited be our guest be our guest <laughs> 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 
From the text, uh, the table was laden with silver and gold, bearing the finest wines and most sumptuous foods. Minstrels strummed on silk-stringed lutes and sang of a love their master had never felt. Ugh. Ugh. That's deep. It's so good. Yeah. I'm sorry, it's just so, it's Lily. so well. If that's not foreboding, I don't know what it is. Yeah. <laughs> so he's flattering her. Uh, employing words of tenderness from the book, uh, quotes, employing words of tenderness, uh, tenderness he had stolen from the poets without any idea of their true meaning. The maiden listened, puzzled, and finally replied, quote, you speak well, warlock, and I would be delighted by your attentions if only I thought you had a heart. Mm. She identified so, the sociopath. <laughs> he's like, um, well, by the way, um, about that, let me... <laughs> Let me just whisk you away here. Uh, they they leave the party. No one really immediately takes notice. They're just like, oh, they're off snogging or something. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm sure it's not too big of a deal that they're gone at first. I love and, that they uh, just don't care. Yeah, this is, this <laughs> is, everyone's just like, ooh. This is before the... Not gonna do anything. Far before the age <laughs> of, uh, of uh, having a chaperone accompanying you. Yeah. Yeah. So they, yeah, they definitely. I'm sure they. Just thinking of like Maid Marian's. Um, yes. W- uh, Lady Clock. Uh, well, that's yeah. the Disney yes. one. Sorry, <laughs> Disney version. So much Disney. But um, but anyway, so they get down to the dungeons. This is where the story really heats up mm-hmm. or chills down. I don't know what you prefer to say. <laughs> um, but uh, there is in fact a crystal casket which is housing, as it turns out, his heart. The warlock, has, the warlock has managed to remove his heart and place it away in this crystal cask. The, the maiden, of course, is, is horrified. Now, this, this heart, in its many, uh, I assume, years of uh, solitude and, and a little bit, Let's let's just go with solitude. Um, it has grown strange and hairy, Ugh. hence the title Ugh. of this story, "The Warlock's Hairy Heart." And the maiden is just completely stunned and shocked and terrified, horrified actually. And uh, she urges him. Uh, she says, "Oh, what have you done? Put it back where it belongs. I beseech you." Mm. That is the last mistake she will ever make. Uh, like, uh, I don't understand why. Like, just run. That's... <laughs> like, who was like, creepy hard, put it back in. Allison, do you ever shout at horror movies, like, for the people, oh. for the victims to, like, get out of the way? Well, <laughs> I don't watch a lot of horror movies, but yes, I do. If I, That's like, fair. I'll That's just fair. like, what are you doing? You're so stupid. Stupid. Yeah, Allison, yeah, I mean, she yeah. with action movies. I yell at the screen for action movies. Like, why the hell are you doing this? <laughs> yeah, but that's. I think, and that is. This is where what I, as I said, the the Beauty and the Beast allegory hits its peak and then falls apart because again, she's still functioning mm. as beauty. She's saying, yeah. all you need to do is put your heart back and you'll be fixed. And in a traditional fairy tale, that's totally what would happen. Um, yep. I think if we if we weren't so by this point, depending on how what you've read of Harry Potter, if we hadn't already been so well informed as to how this works in the wizarding world, 
I think mm-hmm. we would we would one would be taken in by the princesses or the maidens kind of beseeching and be like, yeah, she just she's right. He just has to put his heart back. That that fixes it. Um, well, for me, I mean, the maiden has enough compassion. Yes. To to, to beseech him. him and be like this. This has to. Yeah. yeah. Like, oh, you shouldn't have done that. Like, oh, mm-hmm. you silly goose. Essentially. What what the phrase is, put it back where it belongs. That's yeah. that's the part I want to harp on because the the whole the whole thing where it belongs really speaks to what is natural. Mm-hmm. And the warlock has gone and done something which is not natural. Very unnatural. And that obviously is very reminiscent of of Horcruxes. Um, Slughorn, I think, was the first person in the Harry Potter books to call uh, it unnatural to mm-hmm. split the soul. <laughs> So this this is something. This is exactly along the same lines. Um, Horcrux, the warlock Horcrux. used dark magic. Yeah, the warlock used dark magic and 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 got his heart out um, without it killing him. Mm-hmm. So he puts it back. Ugh, gross. But his body his body's not used to it. His heart is not used to it. And having this pure, innocent victim next to him. Uh, is the worst thing for it. I'm going to quote again from the story. Uh, but the touch of her soft white arms, the sound of her breath in his ear, the scent of her heavy gold hair, all pierced the newly awakened heart like spears. Mm. He is recognizing how beautiful or pure her heart is, and he immediately wants to possess it. This, I think, is what is, like would have happened... What what's interesting about this summary is this is what Dumbledore supposed would happen if Voldemort had shown remorse, is that mm-hmm. it would have been so strong that it actually would have killed him. Um, yeah. Because unlike the Warlock, who at the very least, his Horcrux, because you know we're I think we can safely say the the heart is essentially the idea of a Horcrux. He only has. Can you just call it a heart crux. A heart crux, yes. <laughs> he, and he only has one, as opposed to as opposed to Voldemort seven. And he manages to put right. it back, even but it's already been damaged. Versus Voldemort, who had lost all of his pieces by that point, and only had his original mm-hmm. piece left. And there wasn't enough. There wasn't enough of that, un, like that initial soul left. That if he felt that way, that he could live. But I think the warlock manages to live because he only has one and he put it back. Um, but it, it drives him mad. And of course, too, the wonderful thing about this particular part of the story, I love that she cuts it here, like just as he puts it back and the narration is like, and then he went crazy. But at the same time, the maiden is like hugging <laughs> yeah. him like, and now you shall be returned. You'll be fine. Oh, I'm God. so happy. And then it cuts and it's like, and everybody else upstairs suddenly noticed that they were gone. Like, yeah. <laughs> like any good horror movie. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect cut. That is true. This is, this is the teleplay on this is, is fascinating. Yeah. All, all, I... all beautifully assisted by <laughs> Rowling's horrific drawing of the hairy heart. Oh my God. Yeah. Really though? <laughs> <laughs> just gosh right in your face taking up half the page if you've got the american edition the the, uh, the heart which we're all looking at and will haunt our dreams um <laughs> had grown strange during its long exile blind and savage in the darkness to which it had been condemned and its appetites had grown powerful and perverse perverse <sighs> lovely word for that 
So we were recently talking about um, just maybe five episodes ago on on a little more at this point, the love that Snape has for Lily and how certain people felt that Snape wanted to possess Lily more than to to actually love her. Mm -hmm. Um, Do we see a connection there between this story and sort of Snape's love? I totally see a Lily connection. Like when I was reading this and I was reading the description of the maiden, Lily was what automatically popped into my head. I like that. Um, I want to give Snape a little bit more credit. <laughs> I am not a huge Snape fan, but like I, I do think that he definitely loved the idea of her more than he loved the actual her. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I don't know. Like I, this, this dude gives off such a sociopathic vibe. Like, no, I think Snape actually had feelings, and I don't think this one. Yeah, yeah, you know what? You're right. He didn't want to harm Lily. At all. Yeah, fact, that's the whole. That's the whole point. Whereas this guy immediately wants to harm her. And this was um, actually also the point. And again, just the wording of it, like perverse combined with possessive and purity. Yeah. To me, it read as an allegory for rape. And it really disturbed me. That's like I was reading that, and that like, it. when it cuts away, that was automatically what came into my head, just by his behavior and how he was so obsessed with power. Like it read as the well, profile of yeah, well, and, as, and, of an offender and, of that way. Well, when it when it when it when it cuts away, I mean, he violates her. He yes. penetrates her yeah. with a dagger yeah. and rips out and 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 takes something that's not his. It's so it, it definitely works that yeah. way. Yeah, and oh, so yeah. And to me, like that was just so horrifying. I'm like, Snape would never do that. Like he has strong lines, and I don't think Snape would ever even go near that territory. Yeah, that that's that's very fair. Uh, I now regret mentioning Snape. No, that's, no I don't. I it. don't think that's. I, th- I think <laughs> um, that's good to bring it up because I think there. I think uh, notwithstanding un- that unhealthy love. Yes, yes. Yeah. there. I think if you you know, I think that. I think rather than regret it, I think that helps to really clarify how we understand Snape and Lily's relationship, like how far, yes, yeah. how extreme we can take that. Mm-hmm. analytical approach to Snape as far as breaking his his love for Lily down and how we categorize it because yeah. um, I think and for the record that was a failure <laughs> no well but it, but for you know this this story we can I think this helps put it in context that we can see while there is a I think there's a possessive quality at some point in Snape's love for Lily mm-hmm. I think it becomes some I think because we see how the warlock fails so miserably we can mm-hmm. understand that Snape does his love does mature in in at least a different way than this. Like he doesn't. Become I would say this. it would mature after Lily dies, mm-hmm. and like there's no longer anything to possess, and he more is like he will always love her, but then he has to deal with Harry in a new way. So I feel like that seeing Harry and how he grows up, that's how that love develops and how it matures. Well, and, and Snape is, uh, while Snape is not directly responsible for Lily's death like the warlock is, he is at least indirectly involved in her death. Yeah, he definitely played a hand in it. Yeah, so there is a relation there, I think. It's, mm-hmm. But I think we're just seeing more of an extreme... This, this, yeah. is, this is the contrast that Dumbledore talks about between Voldemort and Snape. And, yeah. that. and, it, and it is Voldemort who wants things for his... Like, he immediately... 
like when he takes trophies and yes. when he yeah. when he, oh it's it's the it's the gleam in his eyes in Voldemort when he sees the cup oh uh, yeah 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 for the first time and he knows what must be done to secure it for mm-hmm. himself. That's what it is. So let's 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 get back to the story. We have a little bit to get to, and then what would be the ending? And then Dumbledore's comments. Let's go downstairs um, to find to see the horrific scene. Oh God! The, par- the party the party guests find the warlock licking and stroking oh. the maiden's heart. Oh. Yeah. Awful! It's the worst. The it's heart the worst. which has been excised from her chest. Sounds like the ending of a uh, Criminal Minds episode. Oh, God. For some reason, I don't watch that show. But it's not even, like, this isn't even the worst part because it still keeps going. He just just keeps going. Yes, yes. But wait, children, uh, that Michael read to, that's not all. (laughs) Whatever magic um, he performed to, to coax his heart, his own heart, out of him the first time isn't working because this new savage heart will not let go. And uh, essentially he takes this, probably, presumably the same dagger he cut her heart out with, cuts his own heart out with, and then because he's done that and it hasn't used magic, he dies. Holding one heart in each hand. Ugh. Ugh. Disgusting. I I really love... um, what uh, what Dumbledore has to say on the matter, real quick. Uh, mm-hmm. He is finally reduced to a violent animal who takes what he wants by force, and he dies in a futile attempt to regain what is now forever beyond his reach. Now, I have a final question regarding the story, um, which is this is more just for our kind of conversation. It doesn't really have any big implications, mm-hmm. but good, even though the maiden, question. even though the maiden is a witch of prodigious skill. Uh, the maiden in this story, she she falls, she dies. Mm-hmm. Um, why? Now, is it because the warlock uh, had an extra advantage by like sinning against nature? So like she wasn't expecting it to be this this uh, this scary, or like basically why why does she why does she die? Do we think is it just the surprise, the uh, shock of it all? I she think, doesn't have time. I to... think Rowling actually answers this in her introduction to the book where she talks about how, where she says, another notable difference between these fables and their muggle counterparts is that Beatles' witches are much more active in seeking their fortunes than our fairy tale heroines. Asha, mm-hmm. Althea, Amada, and Babidi Rabbidi are all witches who take their fates into their own hands rather than taking a prolonged nap or waiting for someone to return a lost shoe. The exception to this rule, the unnamed maiden of the warlock's hairy heart, yeah. Acts more like our idea of a storybook mm-hmm. princess, but there mm-hmm. is no happily ever after at the end of her tale. And I think that goes back to what you said, Colleen, mm-hmm. that idea that she think I think her failure is that she does think, and she says as much, that she thinks she can save the warlock, that she thinks yeah. she can fix the warlock. And... Well, and- it's, the other fairy tale that this reminded me a lot of was Bluebeard. 
Does anybody know that fairy tale? Oh, yeah. I don't know about this, and I would oh, like to hear about yeah. this. So I, that one's creepy. Yeah, I don't remember the full one, but there's, like, the general premise. It's basically there's a guy with a blue beard. Um, every single... Really? Yeah, <laughs> I know. Um, every Surprise. month or so, like, he goes down into the village, and he asks for a new bride. He takes her up into his mansion, and she's gone for long periods of time, but then he comes back and he says, my bride has gone missing, I need a new bride. And so all these women keep going back to the castle, and what he ends up doing is he leaves his bride alone in the mansion for three days. He says, you can, have, you can go anywhere in the castle except this one room. You cannot go in this one room. Is the room in the West Wing? (laughs) Again, this is kind of the twist of Beauty and the Beast. So Bluebeard leaves. He goes for three days. And, of course, the woman's curiosity gets the better of her. Very Pandora's boxy. She opens the door, and it's the skeletons of all his old wives. Yeah. And to Uh. punish her, he kills her and skins her. And, yeah, and he keeps going along the process. Now, eventually in the story, like, he gets defeated, by a girl and her brothers, and I don't exactly remember how that happens, but it was definitely the fable of the woman getting punished for her curiosity, which is a mm. constant theme in fairy tales, and kind of like the number one feminist critique against fairy tales is the fact that like a woman is punished for exploring her world a little bit. And I could see like threads of that in this story. Like it's very traditional in the way it's told. I mean I mean the failure of the maiden here is is not immediately running, but I I don't think it makes her a weak character. No, I, I don't I mean, think it, it does. Ultimately either. just just saying put that back where it belongs is mm-hmm. I, I don't think she really has a high degree of confidence that it's gonna work either way. Yeah. Um but she sticks around to see it. Yeah. You know, she sticks around yeah. because it's the decent human thing to do. And that is, her, the, her, and that is the thing her, with the Bluebeard story is, like, they're locked in. They can't leave. The second they open that door, the door swings behind them, and they're stuck. Yeah, I think yeah. I think the, the Maiden isn't so much a negative character, I think, because the mm-hmm. other thing to think of, too, if we're thinking in terms of the canon of Harry Potter, is that the magic of Horcruxes is not widely known anyway. So she, yeah. no, no matter how yeah. prodigious and wise she may have been in magic, she may not have been aware of what a Horcrux was. So she probably thought that oh, it very true. could be. She, she, she had a very romanticized idea of what putting one's heart back could do. But mm-hmm. R- Rowling was also making a point that, uh, you know, by damaging your soul in an unspeakable way, kind of means you can't fix it so like you and yeah. if you, if you yeah. do you, you you end up going crazy so that's why you shouldn't yeah. even play with that stuff in the first place yeah and i think it's definitely like the two parts of like the girl wanting to save this man that she's committed to as part of her marriage but also the guy like his heart is pure evil like that's been established yeah. and that can't change so i feel like those are two halves that are the only way the story works. Whereas in a lot of fairy tales, it's the purity that saves them or the all encompassing evil that like wins. So, and it's this, well, and then that's, that's something I like about this story too, with the maiden. Cause I like to think of her as like this, this pure character as this pure heart. Yeah. In the end, it's just that she is a, in the end, it's just that she is a, a whole heart, yeah. you know, and his is not that he wants, he wants to possess. Like it's, it's probably just pretty normal as hearts go. Um, <laughs> yeah. But you know, when when you think of fairy tales, it's all about the purity of of, of mm-hmm. love and the, pu- and the pure heart and like 
she's the most innocent creature to ever walk the face of this earth, and and his half heart cannot possibly stand its beauty. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so he hacks it. She's out. more, it, in that sense, a I think more of a literal and metaphorical victim of the plot more than anything. Oh yeah, than being necessarily. She, I, I, oh, yeah, I, I, I don't think she's wholly and completely foolish, just ignorant. Yeah. And that's not her fault, mm. poor thing. Yeah, I would so. say that she's definitely yeah. 100% a victimized character. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it probably just exists to further the, the moral. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Of the story. It is, after all, a cautionary tale mm-hmm. um, that you will go crazy if you try and take your heart out, or you will <laughs> die, or both. Um, so Holy kids, really don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> and and in in the end of Beauty and the Beast, that's you know, Belle. All she has to do is cry over the Beast as he's dying and reveal her love to him, and he. Professor, ah, dying love. Don't yeah. hide your love away, children. Yeah. Is anybody yeah. else excited to see Emma Watson do that thing? <laughs> I'm so excited. Not, not really. Yes. Yes, I am. So excited. I cry when Emma cries, and if she cries as much as Paige O'Hara cried, I will cry. <laughs> we do have to we, we would be remiss not to shout out to disney and their beauty and the beast trailer because it was quite coincidental that that dropped earlier just right before a few days before I this know. episode very very fitting it's like we plan it or something let's talk about what dumbledore talked about Yay! about this <laughs> yeah um interestingly so this is what i loved about dumbledore's comments after because the other two stories uh, he talks about how they're they're challenged and change how they represent problems, um, particularly for pure blood families mm-hmm. that hate the first two stories. Um, this story is not challenged uh, for the the same reasons that the other ones are, but it's also just not told to most children uh, <laughs> because it is scary. Yeah, of yeah. course. Thanks. Um, yeah. Well, it's but, it's it's. I think it's kind of. Yet another, Rowling is doing so many clever jabs at her naysayers in Tales of Beetle I was about Lavard. to say, there's definitely a banned books vibe about yeah, it. Yes. Definitely. And what's funny about this one is that she's saying, here were all these perfectly much more pleasant stories before yeah. this one that have not, that have been challenged to, you know, uh, the the bank and back, but... This one, with all its, you know, horrible mm-hmm. imagery, is not challenged by the public. They're yeah. fine with this one. Um, and it's, I think that's, there, there's definitely kind of a calling out of, like, hypocrisy. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the idea that there are, it's kind of interesting what we will and will not expose our, our children to. Well, and even if we talk in terms of, of Disney, as uh, I, I love the way, again, I'll reference her again, how... Uh, Lindsay Ellis, the nostalgia chick, puts it, but she says that the Disney company is based on a platform of dreams, wishes, and fear. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. And there, while Disney definitely changes the content of the original mm-hmm. stories that they pull from, they still have plenty of violent and graphic imagery in their films how many parents make it past the first Um, act right (laughs) right if we're uh, if we're talking about even beauty and the beast i mean the end what happens to gaston he's just (laughs) (laughs) and no one says 
says anything. No that one is, cares. You know what? You talk about being scared uh, of like it as a kid. I was actually when the when the servants revolt and the oh, uh, yeah. and they they storm the castle. I yeah. was, okay. That's actually I can remember being scared yeah. about. It's the, a pretty crazy. I always thought scene. my wardrobe was going to eat me. Right? Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah, it's 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 totally awesome. <laughs> As I've gotten yeah. older, that whole scene actually amuses me because my brother played Gaston in a music in the musical version <laughs> of Beauty and the Beast, so I get to watch him be killed every night and like thrown off. Yeah. <laughs> it was really funny. If you have a sibling who meets that that fake fate, it's it's pretty enjoyable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> See, um, it, it amuses me because I in high school was in that play and I was the wardrobe, so I got oh. all, like <laughs> I'm trying to imagine like the wardrobe in the fighting scene. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was fun. It was crazy because you were running around with a box on top of you. But <laughs> it's a very like interesting idea, uh, an interesting criticism of you know yeah. what what do we think is acceptable to expose children to, and what do we think mm-hmm. is unacceptable. So moving on um, here, the uh, the 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 part that uh, Dumbledore s- spends the most time on is uh, the invulnerability uh and the the whole uh dark dark section so dumbledore says that the uh one of the greatest and least acknowledged uh temptations of magic is covered in this story which is of course the quest for invulnerability um so i i'm kind of wondering because for me the warlock in this story didn't really want to be invulnerable like he wasn't looking for immortality rather what he was looking for was like to be impervious to the weaknesses of what he saw as the weaknesses of the heart. So like it's not really immortality. He's not like I want to live forever. What he's saying is I want to live and not be dragged down by this emotion. Well, he wants ultimate power and to him that bigness vulnerability is to to ultimate power is love. So in a way I think I could see where Vol- where Dumbledore Voldemort Dumbledore either one yeah. <laughs> avoids yeah. love because like to them it's seen as a weakness and could drag somebody down. Yeah. And if you talk about love as like or like a broken heart as being like an emotional injury, yeah. I guess it kind of, you can kind of be like, "Oh, if you don't want injury, then you want to be invulnerable. Like, uh, mm-hmm. okay. I mean, but so maybe, I kind of see maybe it. that is also a Freudian slip on Dumbledore's part, kind of revealing what he's really talking about. Yeah. Um, Again, Voldemort, Voldemort, Voldemort. Voldemort, Voldemort, Voldemort. I just see yeah. him like reading this book and just being like, oh, well, God. It's, mm-hmm. it's being vulnerable in different ways. It's being vulnerable to two different things. It's being vulnerable to death or to love, mm-hmm. which I mean, I guess they kind of go together, but especially in the Harry Potter universe. Yeah. 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 But um, uh, Dumbledore says that many writers, this is this was the interesting part, many writers compare the warlock's hairy heart to horcruxes. Hey-oh. Uh, Yay. Hey-oh. So we get a complete shout-out. I guess horcruxes are probably known as things uh, in academic circles probably, in which yeah. Dumbledore's notes, like yeah. the capacity for Dumbledore's notes to be transcribed well, and then put into a book. Mm-hmm. Yes, and also like at the time of this publishing, again, if we're going on timeline, it was said in the introduction about the seven volumes of Harry Potter's life. So yeah, at this so point, I feel like horcruxes would be kind of larger knowledge. and so. But that's still, be... that goes back to the the discussion we had, if they are or if they're not. Um, I know we talked mm-hmm. about that by the at the end of the book, like... Are they, are they not? So this, this kind of like throws a wrench in that whole conversation of, or it could answer the question even. Yeah. 
I'm more inclined Maybe to Cursed kind of... Child will answer the question. <laughs> Cursed Child. Cursed Child. <laughs> I think, uh, Eric, I'm, I'm more inclined to go with your train of thought that it's, it's kind of more of an academic knowledge yeah. at this point in the wizarding world and that because we we all seem to be in agreement that harry probably shared the experience of the horcruxes and his knowledge of them with the ministry um, oh absolutely but and and dumbledore when you have when you think about it with these notes is writing in an academic capacity um mm-hmm. that that's his intention and he's all uh, yeah when he's talking about the symbolism yeah. he says the heart he has locked away meaning the warlock slowly shrivels and grows hair symbolizing his own descent into beasthood that's totally academic yeah <laughs> um, but it's 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 a very astute it's as good as it gets because we um, know too that uh, we'll see in, in next week's episode that dumbledore is much more coded in his analysis of the tale oh, of the three yes. brothers Mm-hmm. Um, so, because he's it, 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 the ostensibly these notes are occurring eighteen months um, before he died, so that's somewhere right. in the middle of Order of the Phoenix. So even Dumbledore is not quite completely finished with his so, knowledge on Horcruxes. And, so wait, this is what Dumbledore was doing when he was avoiding Harry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pretty much. This is also possibly what Dumbledore huh. was doing when he disappeared from the school. Uh, here's, a, here's a quote from, from Dumbledore's notes. The resemblance of this action to the creation of a horcrux has been noted by many writers. Although Beetle's hero is not seeking to avoid death, he is dividing what was clearly not meant to be divided, body and heart, rather than soul. Yeah. Um, I also like that so. he, he, he very much clarifies here that this version of a, of a horcrux is not possible in the canon of the reality of harry potter yeah Um, yeah yeah he says he says uh he performs a piece of dark magic that would not be possible outside a storybook yeah um is what is what dumbledore says and i'm like wait why wouldn't it be possible outside a storybook like i don't know i just think you can't live without a heart (laughs) no but unless you go all tony stark and like yeah you you have to have a heart like (laughs) pumping blood (laughs) like you have to have something pumping blood through you yeah, physical injuries are physical injuries. Just look at uh, George with the missing ear. Yeah, there's. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I just think of uh, gosh, what am I? I just think like a severed but still beating heart is. I'm thinking of uh, Indiana Jones. That's ah. yes. Yeah, Temple, like, of, no. Temple of Doom. Te- no. Temple of Doom. Yes, yeah. my oh, favorite. Man. I'm thinking oh, of everybody's no. second. No. I'm, I'm thinking of everybody's second least favorite Indiana Jones movie. Yeah, that's oh. real. <laughs> I think that's a great connection because there's that that like that kind of uh, absurd imagery happens where you can take somebody's heart out and they can still be alive Mm -hmm. um but i for for quite a considerable considerable period period, yeah Yeah. but rolling i i think that's really i think that's some fun world building that she does here in clever world building is she's saying like there's even things that wizards are like oh that's ridiculous you can't do that (laughs) um because she's she's been i think she'd always been very careful about that through the harry potter series of establishing rules and she continues to do that here and say no you you know there's there's even limits to what uh the idea of a horcrux and that beetle is taking poetic license to right but make more symbolic but, kind of pushes but point. that's 
Yeah, that's having her cake and eating it too in the best way possible because the severed heart that's still beating and, and this wizard or this warlock is still able to live is so reminiscent of these 150 other things we've talked about this whole you know podcast so far <laughs> while at this while at the same time not actually being possible in the wizarding in the world. wizarding world yeah so so she's like this is what he does in the story and it's going to make you think of all these other cool stories and things where a heart was separate and all this other stuff but it's not actually possible you don't need to worry about any of Harry's uh, enemies doing this in the future. One one final bit uh, in Dumbledore's notes here, real quick, uh, is that it's it's funny because this story uh, inspired a phrase. Uh, there's a turn of phrase, which is uh, to have a Harry heart, and that yeah. is um, it's it's caught on, and it's it's kind of it, maybe even people who've never heard this story don't understand its true origins. But uh, to have a Harry heart is a thing. And uh, Dumbledore has an aunt. Dumbledore's oh. mother has a sister. Hello, everybody. Uh, whose name is Honoria. Uh, and she supposedly uh, was betrothed to a man who, it turned out, had a hairy heart. Um, although, in a little bit of whimsy, uh, Dumbledore discredits this by saying it was actually that his aunt discovered her fiancé fondling some hork locks. Oh, my God. That's the weirdest thing. The weirdest thing she could have written, I think. That's so rolling sense of humor. To put, like, mushroom-like creatures. This is so, like, what is it with people in the dumb, like, (laughs) who are connected to the Dumbledore family? It's like, Aberforth is his goats, and apparently Honoria's... Potential husband had his aunt's fiance is like a thing for Horklumps. Because to be clear, listeners, you can find out more about Horklumps and Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. They look like mushrooms. They are animals, but as Dumbledore says, it would be very odd to enjoy fondling a Horklump because they have bristles, so they're not exactly pleasant to touch. Um. And uh, so, yeah, that's um, that's another one of Rowling's just weird little random <gasps> bits that she had that uh, we just love her for that crazy humor she puts in there. I also oh love to I, I really enjoyed the bit about because we talked a little bit about her last week, um, but uh, be- <laughs> yes, little Beatrix Bloxham and her horrifying account yes. of being terrified <laughs> another weird thing with, yep uh, and another weird bulbs like i was like what another weird like <laughs> bizarre sexual thing <laughs> that she oh, overheard God. apparently so like allison said with bouncing bulbs um but uh but yeah <laughs> she she attributes that to being the reason that she would sleepwalk Every night, and her dad had to put a sticking charm on her door. And apparently, she yeah. never found a way to translate the warlock's hairy heart into her toadstool tails because it was just too grisly. Well, obviously, she didn't know Beauty and the Beast then. Yeah, apparently she not. All she had to do was <laughs> change the ending. ending. Yeah. <laughs> I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that concludes our discussion of the warlock's hairy heart. Yeah. And now, Allison. Take us into some yes. much lighter fare. Please. Yes, much lighter. Um, probably also one of my favorites. I love this story. I think it's so mm-hmm. charming. And 
It's fun. Babbity Rabbity and her cackling stump, <laughs> which first of all is just a glorious title. I just had so like so ever. much fun, and now I have Ron in my head. Come on, Babbity Rabbity. Babbity Rabbity. This, this is not. This is this is my least favorite story. <laughs> really? Wow. There, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it's I'll a get into it later. I think it it sounds fun. It promises a lot of fun. And for me, I'm just like, oh, I don't think it lives up to it. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. but I will enjoy thoroughly discussing it with you guys. Anyway, let's let's dive into the story then. Um, as Colleen mentioned, uh, it starts with a foolish king decides he should be the only one to have magic. So he sends out um, a proclamation saying he's going to round up all the witches and he sends out a brigade of witch hunters, which side note, I read this and all I can think of is it's my least favorite song from the musical Wicked. Oh, um, good fortune, witch hunters. Yeah, I can, I could still sing you every word of it, yeah, but no. it's, it's my least favorite one. Cause it's creepy. Yeah. Anyway. This must be punished. Yeah, it's the moment everybody turns on Alphaba. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, and you've got uh, the Tin Man. Oh, once I'm glad I'm harmless. I'll be harmless killing her. Oh, anyway, the end. Um, so that's all I can think of reading mm-hmm. those lines. I was going to bring this up later because it also connects later. This, this kind of reminds me of, if any of you guys have seen BBC's Merlin. Yes! Um, <laughs> this very much reminds me of Uther. Oh. Very much. Yeah. Um, yes. Anyway, so all of the witches and wizards, of course, don't really want to die, the real ones. Mm-hmm. So they ignore the proclamation for a king's magic instructor, and instead, a charlatan, wonderful word, charlatan, mm-hmm. I love um, that word. answers the call, claiming he is a grand sorcerer with a lot of power, and he is immediately named the king's grand sorcerer and magic teacher. Uh, so, of course, being a charlatan, he asks for gold and large rubies for casting of curative charms and a silver chalice or two for the storing and maturing of potions. Which, very interesting, is it's steeped very much in kind of historical ideas of magic, but not in the magic of Harry Potter. Um, hmm. We don't don't really hear about any of those things, which... Oh, apart from, I guess, the crystal cask, right, is somehow... Oh, I mean, that's not the wizarding... That's not Harry Potter, but I was just thinking, oh, yeah, you know, the crystal, uh, like, why crystal? Why is that what encases the heart? What's magical about crystal? Oh, yeah. And I I can't think of anything in Harry Potter that does that. So maybe that's similar that way. Like, this guy needs needs diamonds, or rubies, rather, mm-hmm. to, to do it. Well, yeah, the, yeah. the only other kind of finery that we see that might have magical properties are the are the things that belong to the founders um yeah, yeah. the goblin made and that's stuff because they belong yeah. to the founders yeah, yeah. oh yeah goblin made yeah, yeah. goblin yeah. made things the the magic that may or may not lie within the tiara and hufflepuff's mm-hmm. cup um so it's but you're right though that's not really i think that is more to point out like how much of a charlatan he is like no you don't need that stuff for me yeah yeah see i read that as just like i want money yep (laughs) yeah Yeah. definitely interesting to uh rubies which is a connection to gryffindor's sword Mm. which i don't think we would really say is curative Eh, i guess kind of 
In a way, it yeah. Destroys yeah. Horcruxes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the Silver Chalice, which isn't quite Hufflepuff's cup, but maybe. Yeah, there are definitely connections to be made and drawn between them. Yeah, the, I you know, wonder... if, the, if the three brothers really existed, then so too did uh, this charlatan, and <laughs> well, these uh, items eventually became the founders' items. Well, like... this could be around the era that the founders were making Hogsmeade, or Hogsmeade, Jesus, Hogwarts. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, because yeah. the, um, the, this is, we, we talked a little bit about this last week with um, the wizard in a hopping pot, where the magic that we see in that story is there's a lot of um, medicinal magic in the wizard in the hopping pot and that's mm-hmm. a branch of magic that we don't really see in harry potter very much and here this is kind of alluding to uh oh nicholas flamel and more of the chemical what is the word that i'm looking for allison alchemy alchemy, Al- alchemy yeah. thank you yes fabulous Al- this is alchemy which as we found out from rolling is offered as a kind of extracurricular NEWT class if there's enough if there's enough uh, students who want to take it at Hogwarts. But alchemy is not really widely apparently practiced in the Harry Potter world anymore. Um, it's more of a specialized branch of magic. So I I think that's another reason why that there's that disconnect. Um, with alchemy here is we just don't see a lot of that in harry potter either well from the charlatan we get our first mention of babity what a name i love, I love this name so <laughs> rolling <laughs> this is one of those things where she just probably sat down <laughs> again and just said why why did i do this to myself? <laughs> um very much like time turners yes i'm sure in in her appearance on pottercast she said, uh, quoting, Babbity Rabbity and her cackling stump is the stupidest title ever written by man or beast. <laughs> and of course, when I wrote it, I never, I had not, at the point when I gave Ron that title, I didn't imagine for a second that I was actually going to write the story. <laughs> but I did get there, and it's a story about revenge. One which is sort of cunning way of revenging herself for persecution, for muggle persecution. <laughs> which... I wanted to discuss near the end, um, the end of that quote, so we can come back to that. Yeah, mm-hmm. but that definitely, um, I think, explains her grievances with the name. I was like, why yeah. did I name her that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what I found interesting, too, reading this story, um, I don't know why it just hit me, but after we meet Babity, we meet her because she is cackling in the bushes <laughs> at the king, looking stupid. <laughs> as you do when they look stupid. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but there's there's very much this this idea of the the very powerful effect of shame. Yeah. Um, as the the king, it says he feels so ashamed and feels so foolish that he declares he will be having a demonstration for his entire court the next day, and that if he can't do magic, he will kill his grand sorcerer. <laughs> Reasonable. Which, Anybody else yes, get a Malfoy I mean, vibe? <laughs> a what? Hmm? A Malfoy vibe of the fact of like he mostly <laughs> acts rashly in shame, and then he's kind of threatened by Voldemort of, "Hey, if you don't kill Dumbledore, you're gonna die." Well, for me, it's that this charlatan, yeah, uh, this unsavory gentleman, has been taking his money 
for for weeks no, and weeks like and weeks. I feel like it's completely justified. I just I I don't know. Like I just imagine Lucius and Narcissa reading the story to Draco every night. <laughs> And Draco's like, don't look stupid. Don't <laughs> look stupid. I don't know. I feel like this would be the type of story that pure bloods would like because it casts muggles in such a horrible light. Yeah, I mean, oh. if you, if, and I'm sure if if they, if uh, that's very true. The the muggles kind of come out for the worse in this yeah. story. Yeah. So we were they, talking about challenge yeah. stories. I highly doubt this is one of the challenge stories. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the uh, charlatan, in his panic, goes to find Babidi to kind of yell at her because whatever. Gotta yell at somebody. And you screwed me Exactly. <laughs> and he sees her through the window, polishing her wand, and the king's sheets are washing themselves, which I thought was very funny and really connects to this idea of this kind of being almost a Merlin story. Yeah. Um, mm. As that's a very common theme in... Merlin adaptations, um, the ones I was thinking of was both the Disney and the BBC ones, Mm -hmm. um, where you have a scene of something is washing itself, um, whether it be clothes, sheets, dishes, there's something magically washing itself while their controller just kind of sits to the side and does whatever the heck he wants to do. (laughs) Also very Molly Weasley-ish. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I love that it's something we've seen before in the Wizarding World. Mm-hmm. It really ties it back, like ties it back together for me. I mean, I think that's the yeah. like the common man's dream of what magic would really be used for if we had it. <laughs> it's oh, really though. Like the simple things in life. So, that, and you're right. Like that's that's. I think that's a big piece with the Arthur story because it's kind of the idea of that that big. The, that piece with Merlin and Arthur is that Arthur is able to escape his kind of chores and servitude mm-hmm. and responsibilities uh-huh. because Mer- he has Merlin to help him do chores and do that for him. So, um, yeah, I think that that that's a perfect way to directly tie that to that mm-hmm. that story. There's a there's a lot of I think stories out there where magic is used to kind of get people out of responsibilities and chores yes Mary so. Poppins. <laughs> that's what we all want <laughs> that's what we all want yeah. yes well then we get to the next day where the king is giving his demonstration <laughs> and babidi herself is hiding in the bushes uh actually <laughs> performing the magic it's so babidi <laughs> <laughs> rabbits in bushes well yes, i had men- yes. i had mentioned it before with um the warlock's hairy heart and how he borrows the poetry but this is also another kind of reference to the story structure of um Cyrano de Bergerac with great play the idea of an individual Uh who's having somebody else pull the strings behind the scenes to make it look like he or she Mm -hmm. is doing the thing yes Um, I do like the physical setup of like the way your imagination puts this like these characters in proximity to each other I like that about this yeah that that yeah. that trickery is definitely a common trope in in yeah. classic literature and fairy tales. Yes, yes. So we get some very familiar spells from reading Harry Potter. We get a vanishing spell, um, as we've seen them practice in Transfiguration. Actually, McGonagall. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, <laughs> and then we get Wingardium Leviosa. 
Nice little, hey. nice little reference there. Um, floating animals, which, by the way, is a beautiful drawing. By I loved that. JKR of the flying this, horse. This drawing is great. This is this is the second time I, I was I read all the stories last night uh, to prepare, and it was the second time I was reminded of the Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. By C.S. Lewis, because the first time was the the Fountain of Fair Fortune. The the knight being tugged through the maze reminded me for some reason of. Gosh, is it the postman gets tugged into into Narnia? It's the, first the time? it's the cabbie. It's the cabbie. Yeah. That, the cabbie. The first king. cabbie yeah. gets yeah. tugged. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. I love the magician's dance. My favorite. Such yeah. a good um, one. With the horse one. flying, also doesn't the, the horse that he's on goes with him, or so, there's some. Yeah, horse. the horse so, comes with him and becomes the Pegasus. Yeah. Yeah. And that horse yeah, becomes yeah. the Pegasus. Well, I think yeah. so. And the I think the the interesting thing about this particular drawing, um, it's really fascinating that rolling rolling's own drawings are included and she what's so perfect she's good well what's she so is. perfect about she's it great. is that she has she has an almost medieval style to her drawing because she she seems to intentionally have a lack of depth in her drawings yeah um, her drawings are very flat and they're very sketch like yes very sketch very sketched out yes exactly and she does a lot of like cross hatching for shading yeah um mm-hmm. so she but so it's kind of a perfect fit because her drawings have a medieval feel to them um yeah. but if you've ever had the fortune listeners of seeing her other drawings um she back when her old website was cool um she she posted actually <laughs> a drawing of harry ron hermione her and neville from Sorcerer's Stone, yeah. that's very much in that style, um, and you can kind of see how she pictures the characters. Um, yeah, I need to look this up. I have not seen somewhere this somewhere on the internet. There's a sketching she did of I think Snape's there. Yeah. She's got one of Harry. She's got one of Hagrid. Um, there's a couple floating out there. Yeah, um, that's so cool. But it is what she's drawn. It is interesting that like that she because we you know we know that. Beetle the Bard was originally intended for her friends only, and that's why right. she did the drawings. Yeah. Um, and luckily, she was very kind enough to maintain the drawings rather than say have Mary Grand Prix redo them. Um, mm-hmm. I think it was yeah. a very good stylistic choice. Yeah, she's incredible as an artist, which is just like, dang it, do you have to be perfect mm-hmm. at everything? Right? Uh. <laughs> it's kind of like with like actors. It's like, you can either be super talented or you can be attractive. You can't be both. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow she's got it all. Yeah. But yes, well, beautiful drawing. But who doesn't have it all is this king. Mm-hmm. Because oh his best dog <laughs> just died, as we find out during this demonstration. Um, a dog n- dog named, I am not going to say this right because I don't speak French, Sabre? Is he like Sabre, sab- I think. Right Sabre. 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 <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know. I don't speak Sorry, French. Sorry, I'm reading it more Spanish. Um, anyway, which means curved blade or Calvary sword in French, which leads me to think this is a very French fairy tale. Which leads me to think she's taking a bit of a dig at the French by making their king a bit of an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> she is British. Yes, exactly. And I mean, we can we can get into, I was going to bring that up a little bit later um, in Dumbledore's notes of some historical reasons why you might have a crazy French king. Um, <laughs> That's true. But we'll get there. I do. I like the, uh, I like the humor. There's an odd bit of humor with 
the dog because the way that Beetle writes it, you don't know it's a dog at first. You think it's a person. And then they're just like, it's a dog. (laughs) And then you're like, oh, okay. It was a little gorier and now it's a little less gorier it's it's a dog yeah so it's still sad though it's still very sad when dogs it's, sad. it's always sad <laughs> um anyway they they decide they want the king to raise the dead dog as his next trick mm. and i love i love the way this is written where it basically just says babity just sits back because she knows that's not gonna happen <laughs> and so she just doesn't care I can't um, bring people back from the dead. It's not like a pretty it. picture. No one's doing like that. <laughs> <laughs> so much Disney. And that's and that's the that's the I mean and and that's a perfect reference too with the, with the genie and the way that he functions in Aladdin because the genie yes. functions very much in the same way as Cyrano de Bergerac where they there's a limit to how much the 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 charlatan's trick can go on um they always get crazy they always go overboard with how much they think they can get away with and can i yeah can i just say like the the king here got lucky like yeah he's just guessing at like he's making it up off the top of his head thank goodness like babity is accomplished enough to know Mm -hmm. the vanishing and the and 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 the levitation and to be able to to do it that quickly without any kind of hesitation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, cause, cause I mean, sure. Eventually he was going, you know, it's bound to happen. You're going to think of something off the top of your head that can't be done mm-hmm. or requires say a potion rather than a spell, which would take time to brew. You're going to run into the yes. same problem, but yeah. he had a, he had a good run of guessing. Things <laughs> that she could actually do. And this line oh. of like talking about how like, nothing can be risen from the dead with magic like i also had that like memory of dumbledore talking to harry when he was very young yeah. of, like that's the one thing that magic can't do yeah. um especially after oh god i'm gonna butcher how you pronounce it priori incantatum mm-hmm. like with the melding of the walls where he's mm-hmm. like you do realize that we, magic can't bring people back from the dead even though you yeah, saw yeah when he said that i still believed it could though I know, yeah. <laughs> we all still expressed our doubts about prior and condom yeah. but well i think that also makes an interesting connection then to the resurrection stone yeah mm-hmm. right which is going to be a very prominent thing in our next story mm-hmm. um and for harry himself mm-hmm. yeah yeah, but that that's and I know this is in Dumbledore's notes later, but he talks about wizarding children at large learning that rule through this story. Yeah, which makes sense. Um, just and just because it's so pre- it's presented so matter of factly, mm-hmm. as you said, um, in this story as being a rule, and Babbage yeah. just sits back. But of course, her sitting back makes this king very very angry, and <laughs> they all. The charlatan points out Babbity in the bushes, and so they all go on a chase. Basically, a hunt of a rabbit. It's a mm-hmm. rabbit hunt. <laughs> <laughs> and Babbity seemingly turns herself into a tree, which there you go, there's another Merlin parallel um, mm-hmm. for some original Arthurian legend where Merlin gets trapped in a tree. Yep. Um, very interesting setup of these connections here. And she decides. they decide to cut her down cut the tree down that they think she's turned herself into in order to get rid of her. But the stump starts to cackle <laughs> and talk and tells them that you can't kill a real witch or wizard by cutting them in half. 
And to try, they sh- to prove it, they should try to cut the grand sorcerer. <laughs> She's so smart. Sweet revenge. Which, of course, yes. <laughs> I think that's why I love this story so much, is Babity is so smart. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, I, yeah. That's, the I think, the fun thing about Babity mm-hmm. is she continues Rowling's trend of the underdog, such as the, yeah. especially individuals in servitude like the house elves, who are overlooked but are more powerful than they may initially seem. Yeah. That's a good point. Which is also actually, a fairy the tale trope as well. So mm-hmm. definitely, yeah. yeah I think that's that's a strong theme in Harry Potter. And she, it's funny how Babbity as a story, while it is less serious than say the Warlock's Harry Heart, it's still covering a lot of the same ideas. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, definitely. About the uh, about death and kind of the how she manages to sneak that one in there. Um, Two ways to tell a moral. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. One thing I was thinking of though, maybe it was just witches and wood. <laughs> Did anyone else think Monty <laughs> Python here? Yeah. <laughs> I do now. I get a very Monty Python. Also, she's a rabbit. Yeah. Well, to be fair, you know. <laughs> Rowling has a love for Monty Python. She wanted. Yes. She wanted. That's well known. She wanted Terry Gilliam to direct Harry Potter, so he was her first choice. One of Dumbledore's many names is Brian. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, and uh, go ahead, Alfred. John Cleese. Yes, John Cleese. Is headless Nick. Yeah. Which she was yep. thrilled about, from what I recall. So mm-hmm. yes, I mean, come on, it's a. Yeah, if, I I would love to think that's the reference because that is a fantastic scene. It's so good. <laughs> it's because so they're made funny. of wood. Good. I got better. <laughs> Turn me into a newt. Well, that's definitely. I think that's definitely perfect too because that mirrors the. I think that mirrors the this this story and the accusations against Babity. Definitely mirror the absurdity of that scene. Um, yeah. where the, mm-hmm. the peasants are just saying the craziest things. <laughs> so, and the logic is very misplaced and they're in their mm-hmm. way that they get to the, they Definitely. deduce that she's a witch. It's very ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So listeners, yes. really, if, if you are listening to Alohomora <laughs> and you haven't watched Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Go watch it. It's very much, it's very much her kind of humor too. Yes. So oh, yeah. that fits in as well. Very British humor. Very. Um, and... So they decide to make amends, and the king promises to erect a golden statue of Babidi on the stump. Um, And then we see the story ends with a white rabbit with a wand between her teeth hopping out from behind the stump. (laughs) Which, by the way, putting a piece of wood in a rabbit's mouth is a very bad idea, having owned rabbits. If it's wood, they're going to chew on it, and it's going to be gone. (laughs) Also, I didn't even, like, put this together until now, but, like, a lot of Native American folktales has the rabbit playing the trickster and playing Mm. the one that, like, gets the better. Yeah, has the, yeah, getting the better. Yeah. Native American is more coyote, but African American. Um, yes, yes, You've yes, got yes, briar sorry. rabbit. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's very, that's very... Yeah, well, yeah, I was getting my folk traditions folk mixed tale. up. But that, I know that the rabbit normally plays the part of the trickster in a lot of the folk tales. Yeah, and the and the, the, uh, the African American idea of, of, of briar rabbit 
transferred over from a lot of African tales where a rabbit yeah. is yeah, a trickster definitely. as well. And that even plays into that rewind or kind of fast forwards rather into the references of from Europe um, and the reference to Beatrix Bloxham stretch yeah. that to the reference of Beatrix Potter. You got Peter Rabbit, yeah. who is a very naughty little rabbit. Um, <laughs> if you've ever read the tales, um, kind of that's that's the the point of Peter Rabbit is often to teach a lesson through how misbehaved he is. Um, so so yeah, there's a, definitely a tradition of trickster rabbits. And from there we get on to Dumbledore's notes, which the the first thing he says is that this is in terms of magic the most real of the tales. Um, magic aligns most to ma- the magical principles. Uh, that happen in the wizarding world. Um, fun tidbit. I like that take on it. I like he's not just like, oh, you just saw Wingardium Leviosa. He's like, knowing the 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 magical laws of the world like we do, I can I can tell you that it's the most conforming. <laughs> you know, yes. having just left university, I can like hear professors making those arguments. <laughs> And we do get something very interesting. We find out there are magical philosophers mm-hmm. um, who are looking into theory, which is fun. And they seem to be French, like a lot of our philosophers, um, which makes me wonder, then, are there a lot of Scottish magical philosophers as well? The God! Um, <laughs> Wasn't, um, isn't, uh, he's, now he's a British one, but I believe he's, he's mentioned here as a, uh, a Dalbert Waffling, right? Is he mentioned in this in the footnotes no. of this one? He's in one of them. I don't think so. Oh, he might be. He might have been mentioned. Oh no, he's he's. Mis- I think he's. I think he's in Tale of the Three Brothers because that one okay. touches on a lot of Muggle stuff. Okay. Um, I remember him being mentioned. I'm gonna have to find where he is. But you're definitely right. I remember reading about because I I only thought of mentioning him because he he this isn't his first appearance. He was first. He first showed up on a wizard card. Um, oh. so he's, he came up before, but, but yeah, I guess the one we've got is Bertrand de Percy Profond. Um, and thank you for pronouncing that. Cause I never could. <laughs> Again, <laughs> nice I, friends. I'm so sorry. <laughs> and, and that, uh, Frenchman also proves that if you give something a really long, fancy name with a lot of big words, it's going to seem really impressive. <laughs> um, his landmark study is a study into the possibility of reversing the actual and metaphysical effects of natural death with particular regard to the reintegration of essence and matter. And it University sounds article that title. Like, <laughs> yep. It sounds to me like the whole article is two sentences. Give it up. It's never going to happen. <laughs> oh, it's so great. It's, I love that. Do you have That's... any idea how many times I wish I could say stuff like that in my master's paper? Where it's like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hilarious. It, yeah. I, I think I would both as a teacher laugh and probably give it an A just for cleverness. <laughs> Don't also do kind that, of like, future students. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, um, write it out. And especially like people looking for jobs. Don't just write on your cover letter. Please, dear God, hire me. I promise I know what I'm doing. <laughs> uh, That's a nice little bit of Rowling's humor there. But then we do get to uh, another kind of touching on it's all. it's getting very close to the Resurrection Stone where Dumbledore mentions Wizards coming up with illusions of our loved ones' continuing presence. Mm. He talks specifically about paintings um, and photos where 
they move well actually this is jkr sorry yeah which um, is interesting because it's where, the first time we this this yeah. is this predates Pottermore yeah. with her thoughts on exactly portraits so and wow. and it tells us that paintings though they move and they can talk the way their subjects do there's really no connection between them and the actual person in that same footnote i laughed very very hard because she uses Harry's ghosts are transparent line <laughs> from Half-Blood Prince, which I forgot about and found absolutely hysterically funny because it's sassy Harry mouthing off to Snape yes. um, in there. Yes, with Ron's, isn't that, isn't that the one with where Ron has the follow-up? It's like, if we're going to have a chufty with a ghost in a dark alley, we're not going to be like, are you the imprint of a departed soul? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Harry's is more oh, practical. Ghosts are transparent. Sassy Harry is the best, Harry. <laughs> yeah, yes. So I I laughed a lot that we that she resurrected that line or it was somehow lodged in her brain. Yeah. Sassy Harry. <laughs> um, we then get a mention of Animagi, but interestingly, we don't really get anything new about them. Uh, Dumbledore just kind of explains what they are and that it's difficult to become one and that the ministry keeps a record. And then we get a footnote that McGonagall wants everyone to know she has not done anything illegal. <laughs> well, we got it, you know, and we got a little bit of seeing how she used that at the beginning of Sorcerer's Stone, um, as far yeah, as kind of reading a map, I'm still not over yeah. that. <laughs> yes, kind of be well, kind of being like a sentinel, like a lookout, um, mm -hmm. was definitely I think part of what she she was doing. I think at the time, the big new piece of information about Animagi from from this footnote that to me kind of contradicts it with one example that we've seen, and we talked about this during Goblet of Fire, but as she okay. says. If you're an animagi and you transform into an animal, you retain yourself. Like, you know who you mm -hmm. are. You're self-aware of who you uh -huh. are and, and who you've been before. But if you transfigure into an animal, you lose that and you're just basically an animal and you have to have somebody transfigure you out. Oh Obviously, God. the major problem with that is that Crumb transfigured himself into a shark. And it's specific. That it to in the book that he transfigured, not animagied. So, how did he do that? <laughs> in a way. Well, it's, okay, it's, I was it's... also thinking of Malfoy and Ferret. Yeah. Oh, that's a move. Oh. Well, yeah, because they they do note during that event that the the ferret seems to be semi kind of aware that it's in a kind of compromising position. Yeah. Um. So it's it, it. I think the narration suggests that Malfoy is still somewhere in that ferret. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, 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 and of course the ferret, at least Moody is the one who transfigures him back. Well, Moody or Moody yes. or McGonagall changes him back. So it's at least mm -hmm. that narratively makes sense with this, but crumb is the one that's always been problematic to me because I mean, notwithstanding the fact that he would need all his facilities to get through the task. 
Um, yeah. How did he get himself trans- transitioned back, or did somebody transform him back? Like it just, especially if the rules yeah. were too that they all had to perform their own magic. Technically, somebody shouldn't be transfiguring Crumb back to himself. But how did he? Yeah, Karkaroff seemed like a cheater. Well, it's interesting too because if any of you have read uh, Fantastic Beast, there's an entry of the the Quintape. I think it's called. Oh yeah, the Quintiped. Um, the, yeah. the what is it harry mcguffin yes i think it's is its other name a horrifying she story talks about yes <laughs> she talks about these clans that turned one of the one of the clans turned the other clan into um into these creatures but no one's been able to catch one to turn it back mm-hmm. to ask it questions to ask them if the story's true mm-hmm. which makes me think that if you get turned back you'll return back to yourself Mm-hmm. which makes me wonder too then if there are degrees of how far you can go so crumb we know it's just his head does that mean there's still enough of him that he could turn himself back but if you get fully turned into an animal there's not enough of you or maybe you're not magical enough then to turn yourself back into a human well and i yeah That's very interesting i imagine the excuse you're you're along you're riding along the lines of what rolling's excuse would be allison because what's specified in that situation with crumb is that it's a botched transfiguration and he doesn't do it right um yeah so it's but i mean in my opinion i would think that would be more damaging than <laughs> right <laughs> so eh, crumb was a little thick but yeah, i mean have shark brains forever and that's i think that's wise that she tried to make a distinction because this because i think that raids you know that originally raised the question of why would you have a an ability to transfigure into an animal if you can if there's also an animagus and those are different branches like why do you right. have that um so she's definitely trying to explain that away but i think she ma- just made a tiny little oopsies on this one an interesting note dumbledore makes though is that he doesn't think beetle ever actually met an animagus because he has uh babbity talk while in animal form, mm-hmm. um, which obviously they can't do, though I'm now imagining the possibilities of Sirius Black and James Potter talking as a stag <gasps> and a dog. Yeah. Oh my that's, god, that's how very, 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 uh, uh, all dogs go to heaven style. <laughs> yes! Or, yes. Or, or, or even like homeward bound style oh. to me. Like, I just think, like, the mouth doesn't move, but you can hear their voices. Well, yeah. we, we oh, know too that. Yeah. Sirius was able to communicate with Crookshanks in some right? form through like animal language. Yeah, though. yeah, they didn't like but talk. not like talking. But despite being cross species, they were able to communicate with each other. Well, not mm-hmm. only cross species, but if the animagus form does indeed keep retain your human mind and your human faculties the way that Dumbledore says here, then it's even weirder that Sirius was able to communicate with Crookshanks. So not, Maybe because you know, he was a dog for so long, like he was able to. F- figure it out i don't know yeah. maybe like because he was maybe an he just played charades yeah maybe <laughs> probably he's playing charades with crookshanks it, it, out it, it helps that crookshanks is a smart cat yes because yeah. like, we also know that um wormtail communicated with other rats to find his way yeah back to Voldemort. Mm-hmm. oh that's a good point so yeah. there there is a we definitely know that as an animagus you can communicate with other like you can definitely communicate with other animals that are your species um so but there must also be at least a rudimentary way to communicate with animals who aren't your species so 
Yeah. Yes. No no talking animals in Harry Potter though. <laughs> the Sphinx, but that's that's an exception. I think there's I was about to say there's a limit uh, to the magic. Yes. <laughs> and then we get into the story of a very famous animagi, um animagus, actually I guess it's singular. Um that as I was slightly disappointed is not a real person <laughs> because Aww. I had accepted that it was a real person, but I went looking and there's nobody by the name of oh. Lisette de Lapine, um, <laughs> who Rolling Rights was a French sorceress convicted of witchcraft in Paris in 1422. However, maybe I should have figured this out because Lapine is a derivative of the Latin for rabbit. rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, it's a funny little. It's um, a fun little story, though. It's a. It um, is, and it sounds real. Yes. and I've just gotten so used to J.K.R. pulling off of real history and putting spins on it that. I just accepted it as real. <laughs> well, and as far as I'm aware, Lizette, this is her first introduction in Harry Potter. She does not come from a wizard card. Um, I don't recall her being on one, so she's she's new. The only thing that kind of ties in that came prior to this, and it's questionable as far as its canon goes, because I don't think it's appeared... No, it hasn't appeared in anything official canon but there there's a spell that showed up i believe first in the harry potter trading card game and transferred into some of the video games its most prominent appearance was prisoner of as the prisoner of azkaban video game um there's oh. a, there's a lapiphor spell um it it's just lapiphors and it turns it, it can either depending on which version of the game you're playing it will conjure up a rabbit for you or it will bring a rabbit statue to life um and oh, you can guide a little rabbit cool. around. Hermione specializes in the Lapiphor spell in the video games. Um, well, what does not specialize in? Fun, fun, fun little spell. So obviously, the the Lapiphor's thing was something that the the video game crew caught onto as well, and we're like, "Wee rabbit spells, <laughs> Latin <laughs> rabbits, <laughs> Latin rabbits, wee." <laughs> All you need in life. What, who is the historical figure that she mentions <laughs> is she mentions King Henry VI and that uh, the story of uh, Lisette de Lapine is um, that she was caught accused of witchcraft and escaped and the story is she may have turned into a rabbit, a white rabbit that attached a sail to a cauldron and <laughs> sailed across the English Channel <laughs> to escape. And then became a trusted advisor of King Henry VI. Oh my god! Who, funnily enough, funnily is not a word, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, Henry VI, the son of Henry V, um, very famous Shakespeare. Um, mm. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers, St. Crispin's Day, that's Henry V. Mm -hmm. Shakespeare's Henry V. Um, he's the son Do of that. You mean Gilderoy Lockhart? <laughs> yes. I'm sorry. Yes. Not my favorite version of that movie, but it's fine. No. Um, it's, yeah, anyway. So King Henry VI is the son of Henry V, who won a lot of territory in France for England. And Henry VI lost all of that territory in France. <laughs> and then had a mental breakdown. Um, interestingly enough, a lot of scholars think he was suffering from schizophrenia. Mm. And that he inherited that from his maternal grandfather uh charles the sixth of france Whoops. who also was suffered from a lot of mental insecurities historians think um so an interesting tie to a fairy tale of a french king 
who is a little deluded in some mm. things. I mean, your um, your suspicion, Allison, that there's maybe like a just a little <laughs> jab at the French. I mean, the 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 English, as far as I'm aware, have always had a bit of a frenemy oh, yeah. relationship <laughs> with the French. So it's definitely it kind of trickled down to the, there's there's I mean, and again, excellent. Way, way, reason to bring it up again but the way the french are depicted in monty python yep. is, is pretty funny but they get the funny thing too is the french get the last laugh in that movie so uh it, yes they they don't always lose in their parody and mm-hmm. uh i think i think that's i think that's also a great connection because a lot of these fairy tales that we're seeing have not only been inspired i think the the thing the the authors we all immediately think of are the brothers Grimm, who were german and more and Mm -hmm. and their stories tend to be more associated with kind of traditional english european storytelling um but the other fairy tale uh individual who we who we don't look to as much but who is just as involved in the history um here is uh charles perot um Yes. Who took, he was, he, he also did a lot of the, he also did versions of a lot of the fairy tales that the Grimm's did. And he, the funny thing is his version of Cinderella is very sanitized compared to theirs, but mm-hmm. his version of Sleeping Beauty is horrific compared to the Grimm's oh, version. Oh yeah. Um, he, 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 he can compare, he can like, sim- like simultaneously he'll very much clean up and censor things that the Grimm's did. But and then on the opposite end, he does very gory, violent, bizarre, and he's also responsible for Bluebeard, um, for the most popularized version. Yeah. Of Bluebeard. Ah. So um, yep. it's it's kind of <laughs> odd how Perot approaches stories. And actually, um, listeners, many while we think that of Disney being mainly inspired by Grimm, Walt often credited um, Perot with uh, Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty are credited to Perot's version, not the Grimm's versions. Well, there's even some, if we're tying this back to, I'm seeing a lot of Arthurian um, Mm -hmm. connections in this story. A lot of that is very French influenced as well. Um, A lot of Arthurian myth comes from uh, different French ideas and well, and things like that. Y- you know what? I I want to I want to just go on the record and change my mind about this story in general. From this <laughs> Yay! I, I actually I really like I love I love the Arthurian connections that I'm learning about for the first time here. So yeah, Allison, we which hey, that ties into Monty Python too. Well, and I think yeah. I think just... Eric, I think what the maybe the hesitancy to really fall in love with the story comes from is that. Other than the tale of the three brothers, which we get straight up in Deathly Hallows, this is the only fairy tale in Beetle that we had an expectation for. Um, yeah, maybe no. Well, I, what it is for me and my criticisms, like it's almost too meta to be allowed because it's just like you know she just she shot herself in the <laughs> foot, and this this story exists because it has to. Mm-hmm. You can't release <laughs> you can't release Beetle the Bar. All the other ones she could start from scratch. Yeah. And like really be inventive and creative about this, she pigeonholed herself and was like, "Okay, now I've written a, a story titled Babbity Rabbit and Her Cocking Step. Now I've got to live through it." So it, it felt like like that sort of. But but actually, I think the people work 
some people work best under pressure, and, and now I'm convinced that Joe's actually taken this unfortunate hand of cards that she dealt herself and turned a uh, brilliant masterwork out of it. Yeah. So I've, yeah. I've changed my mind. Um, Eric, I think it, because, and Allison, you wrote it too, but I think it's a perfect moment since we were talking about comparisons to bring up the the stories, this particular story you guys saw a comparison to. Mm-hmm. We I, I very much see Emperor's New Clothes in yes. the first half of this. He's um, the king. He's aloof. <laughs> yeah, like, he looks like a fool. Ah, and this guy comes along and is like, "I have, I have this perfect silk for you." Yeah, yeah, yeah and the, yeah, the charlatan um, works in the same way too. I was about to yeah. say, like this, that is one of the few fairy tales where they play a charlatan really well, and it's one of the central characters. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, yeah. Michael, you had another one too. Yeah, um, that you were seeing. The the one I came to mind is uh, Puss in Boots, which uh, I'm trying to see. Uh, that's uh, Puss in Boots uh, has Italian roots, actually. Mm. Um, and uh, it, it's it, he he's Mama he's yeah. kind of fallen into the the Mother Goose stories, and he's also had a Perot version as well. Um, but the the idea of Puss in Boots is that he essentially fools a king into thinking because he 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 uh, a a young man inherits the cat thinking that he's useless and then of course the revelation is that this cat can get him everything he desires the cat kind of basically works as the same function as the genie in aladdin um but what he does to get the the young man everything is that he tricks a king into making the making the king think that this young man is actually very very wealthy and in high standing um so that he can get him what he wants and you know in the end the 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 funny thing is is that the moral of the story is actually about having a sense of kind of charm and savoir faire and that'll get you places in life (laughs) 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 so that charming yeah it's it's very much the idea that if you're if you're um if you have a very likable personality um you can get things that you want (laughs) (laughs) Which is <laughs> a very yes. odd little moral, um, yeah. but uh, but yeah, it's 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 definitely again the idea, the imagery of a of a foolish king, um, and being yeah. tricked by a commoner. Couple more, couple more points I pulled out of uh, Dumbledore's notes. He mentions, or I guess it's a footnote um, that mentions that Muggles are able to maybe use the residual magic in a wizard's wand, and the first thing I thought of was. Harry's wand in Deathly Hallows, um, the moment it spins in his hand, and they, I, it, does Hermione mention this or does Harry mention this? Someone talks about regurgitating old magic. Mm, yeah, I think that or was maybe Hermione. it's Dumbledore at the end. No, this is. The, I think this this is a fun idea because this again is another thing that predates Pottermore, and our extensive yeah. knowledge of wands now. Um, but this is a first taste of that where it explains mm-hmm. a little bit more properly how a wand functions and the idea that this is this is also very much a kind of explanation of how the death the deathly hallows the elder wand works yeah um yeah that wa- well what she what she's illustrating here is that muggles could never do magic use a wand the only the only way a muggle waving a wand could do anything as if the wand is like very rarely like still storing some power somehow mm-hmm. um because the wand is a function it channels the existing power from the wizard's magical 
body, you know, essentially. It, it suggests that wands are almost sentient. Yeah. Which is very, very interesting to me. And that they can hold on to magic in a way. Um, that they're not just like conduits, but they're also receptacles for magic. Yeah, it's definitely which... an extrapolation on what we saw in Hallows. The idea, that, and yeah. that's why I brought up mm-hmm. the Elder Wand, um, which I think, the I, I guess, when we, when we go along with that, the Elder Wand, the idea behind it, I guess, is that more than a, perhaps the average wand, it retains magic. And I would imagine that in the hands of a muggle, the Elder Wand would be extremely volatile and dangerous. Yeah. Um, because it has a lot of magic stored in it. Um, but yeah, it's it's kind of like... It is kind of like if a wizard holds a wand long enough and becomes familiar with the wand long enough, the wand kind of retains a little bit of them and their power inside it. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's a cool idea. The last little bit, um, it's actually like the last sentence Dumbledore writes <laughs> for his notes for this story. Oh. Yeah. He says that he's talking about the the idea raised in the story that... Um, Babidi threatens the king that if he should hurt any other witches or wizards, it will feel like an axe in his side. Um, And he says this could be playing off of the unforgivable curses, which weren't made illegal until 1717. Does this seem really, really late to anyone else? I, I looked it up and so torture was outlawed in England in 1640. So why were the wizards almost 40 years late on this update? They still use steam-powered <laughs> to get around. No, I, I, yeah. I don't know. You know, I I don't know. I, but that was that was explained in Pottermore that particularly. But anyway, um mm. I no, I see it I see an old date and I'm like, "Okay, that's an old date." <laughs> like, I, but actually looking looking at it and and I love people who know history enough to be like, "That was late." Um for me, it's like, I, I wonder just if there was maybe something happening and the wizards had a reason to continue using those spells or perhaps something bad happened uh, that that essentially acted as the catalyst to making those, those and why those, those three and not, why were there three and not four, you know, uh, why, you know, what, what about those three? where some happened where somebody was like, okay, it's time to outlaw these, um, you know, and, and, and then it happened in the way that it did where they were grouped together as the unforgivable curses. How we learn them is the three of them, but realistically it could have happened more organically where they were outlawed at different times. Mm-hmm. Um, but that didn't happen. So it, yeah. it actually, you know, the, the, this one line from Dumbledore really does raise a lot of interesting questions. I think. Well, I feel like it, you can also say, like, in this story, well, in Dumbledore's annotations for this story, he does point out how unforgivable curses were used against muggles specifically. Oh, uh, yeah. And I feel like, again, we don't really have an accurate, like, history timeline as to when muggle-born started being more acceptable and when muggles and wizards stopped being so at odds with each other. But I could see it taking a long time just for the sheer animosity between the two groups. Or the way wizards felt about muggles for a very long That's time. That's a good point. I could see that taking a long time. I think you're right, mm-hmm. Colleen, because the 
what we got actually from the very first story, The Wizard in the Hopping Pot, Dumbledore does mention that the International Statute of Wizarding Secrecy was put in place in 1689. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's still quite a few years out, but we are yeah. talking like end of the 1600s to early 1700s. So if the International Statute of Secrecy goes into place, it would follow that unforgivable curses, if they are being used on muggles, would... And- in my, in my head, the timeline makes sense if the Statue of Secrecy went into effect in 1689, because then they had that almost a couple decades of messing with this statue and seeing where the limits yeah. are, and yeah. people are using unforgivable curses on muggles to protect the statute. That could cause the ministry to kind of pull back and be like, okay, wait a minute, oh, we might have to regulate well, this a little bit more. But I also feel like that almost doesn't make sense, because if... I was way off. I can't do math. This is 80 years apart. <laughs> oh. um, uh, if, if Statue of Secrecy was 1689, that means there were 49 years between when torture was outlawed in England and muggle and wizarding societies kind of split. Because yeah. she she's talked on Pottermore how the introduction of the statute of secrecy was kind of where they split and wizards started lagging behind. Um, I think the only other argument that can be made for it is that, and I don't know too much of the historical context about this particular piece, but um, I know (laughs) all of you fans of Hamilton will know this. Um, (laughs) The, 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 by the time that our founding fathers were, um, kind of doing their thing over here in the States, um, there was still, the idea of pistol dueling was still acceptable. Oh, yeah. Everything is legal in New Jersey. <laughs> and so... That's line. I think, I think that, it, like, the, the, the thing that that maybe ties into for Wizards, for me, and the suggestion that comes from the tale of the Three Brothers... Um, as well as other things we've heard from the wizarding world, is that um, dueling to kill was not considered unacceptable at that time. Yeah. Um, I like I like that a lot about the dueling yeah. business. I really mm-hmm. like that that reference because it actually just because it's like we're civil we're a civilized world. We've just founded this <laughs> new country on freedom, and you have the freedom to kill, kill, each, kill each other <laughs> if there is a dispute. <laughs> So even even using the killing curse then would be and if potentially look, acceptable mm-hmm. in a mm-hmm. duel. Yeah, and if I kind of want to kill the mood here, um, <laughs> but like look at American politics and how vehement people are over gun control now. Like yes. there's still yeah. definitely that fight over like regulations when it comes to if we're thinking of the wand as a weapon, like this level of regulation and stuff like that like granted they seem like logical laws don't kill people don't torture people but still i could see like the wizards feeling the separation between killing by magic and killing like with your own bare hands with a gun with a weapon but there's definitely it's a very yeah it seems like a very progressive idea yeah and and Uh there's still this i think idea in the throughout the even into the 1700s of um kind of honorable deaths and yeah. uh, you know that honor being a big piece of uh, kind of etiquette and and that kind of ties into the pistol duels and so i i think with with wizards um because that's the thing that we see all the way even all the way into harry's time in chamber of secrets that there's still a formality in duels 
um, yes. with the bowing and the eye contact. Um, yeah. So, which is a very traditional way of 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 uh, carrying out a duel. So, I imagine that 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 is the only other thing that I could think would be mo- like somewhat logical reasoning for why that took so long for that to be for those to be banned because mm-hmm. they were probably still considered fair play at the time. I I have something else about this Cruciatus thing. Um, when when Dumbledore says suggests that that's actually you know similar to that spell. I thought it was interesting that it would be that the Cruciatus curse potentially can be localized. You know, when she says it's like, it will feel like an axe is in your side, mm. the Cruciatus curse in the books is like, oh, it's pain all over, right? You're cringing. Uh, that, but like, that might just be like poetic license, I think. The, but I'd love it if there were a spell to be like, to localize the yeah. pain, you know, like imaginary pain refined kind well, of. Well, I think we know? get the idea from or, the story that Babidi is a pretty powerful witch. So, and the other thing that links with that, because it's fascinating to the idea that she could place, like Dumbledore does posit that it's possible that she could have placed this curse on them if she wanted to. And the only thing that I can think of that's equatable to that is Voldemort's curse on the defense against the dark arts position. True. Um, Like a a more traditional idea of a long lasting curse that continues, you know, even after you've left that location. Um, kind of a more of a traditional witch's curse. Um, that's that's really cool. Whether or yeah. not Babidi actually did it or not, or if she was just saying it because she thought it was funny, um, is who knows. But mm-hmm. it's yeah, I I love I like too that there is that touch here that that we we do have one story here, and we'll get that with Tales of the Three Brothers. But that I think is a different. It kind of a different matter altogether, but we do get another story here where, with the idea that oh maybe this was kind of based on something, um, yeah. Because you you think to legends say like my my favorite one to think of in terms of this would mm. be like Mulan, which you know there's there's no confirmation that Mulan was actually a real person, but there's there there are analysts who have examined her story and found that it complies with potentially complies with actual historical events as far as the war that is summarized in her in her ballad and that she maybe was a real person um That's so cool. it's always it's yeah. a, it's kind of a fun thing to have rolling it's just it's so meta it's like oh in my fictional world these fictional people are real <laughs> like <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i love it just, layers and layers and layers of that i did find by the way because i just had to justify this for myself adalbert waffling is mentioned he's mentioned in the warlock's hairy heart so he came up a while ago we oh we missed him okay. i missed that so, but yeah adalbert waffling he had a wizard card so <laughs> <laughs> just had to shout out shout to, out to adalbert nice. waffling yeah well the, before we wrap this up i actually have one little thing we kind of touched on earlier as I was looking for this quote that I read earlier about how J.K.R. said Babbity Rabbity and her <laughs> cackling stump is the stupidest title. Um, the, the end of this quote where she's talking about is a story about revenge kind of surprised Ooh. me. Mm. I Reading this, I wouldn't have said it's a story of revenge. I Because usually if we're talking about trickery myths, mm-hmm. it, it's more about the trick than mm. about why they do the trick. Mm-hmm. 
So what what do you think? Do you guys see this as a revenge story or um I feel like it depends, like, again, it's with any interpretation, it depends on the reader and where they come from. Like, me, no, I saw it as, like, a general trickster story, but, like, putting it in the sense of, like, earlier where I said the Malfoys probably read the story to Draco all the time, <laughs> I, I could see pureblood families reading this as kind of a warning tale for muggle persecution and kind of as a justification as to how they treat muggle-borns and as how they treat... And, like, how they have that thinking of, like, witches and wizards being superior. Look at how stupid this muggle is. And look at how stupid they were when they did this. So I, I, I could see this as being one of those stories that's, like, twisted into different meanings. It's funny you, you phrase it that way, Colleen, too, because... And, and look at it through that lens. And what's funny is that Dumbledore doesn't. He, extra yeah. he doesn't extrapolate on the moral of of babbity rabbity and how it applies mm -hmm. to the modern wizarding world he goes more into kind of the technical aspects of babbity rabbity yeah um yeah but, and i think it's more because he didn't come up in that kind of environment like at, at least the impression i got when reading deathly hallows is his family didn't have that type of pure blood mindset but in a family where it's so entrenched like the malfoys i could totally see them reading it that way well and we also know that ron has an affection for the story and seems to mm -hmm. find it humorous. Um, if we kind of go by Ron's sense of humor, yeah, this is probably just a fun, like I imagine this is this, I suppose this would be a story that wizards would kind of read as, because the, what we know from Pottermore, as far as the general feeling now of wizards towards muggles is they kind of look at us with like, they kind of say like oh aren't they adorable um, yeah and i feel like ron is the main character that struggles so much with that with like that. Yeah. he doesn't have necessarily like what i would equivalent as equ wow <laughs> uh, what i would equate as like um racist tendencies towards muggles no. but he definitely has kind of a occasionally superiority complex where he would definitely like kind of put himself slightly above or just be like well, why don't you do it? That Like, he just doesn't have a lens and a way of thinking about muggles, and he can kind of slip into that mentality every now and again. Yeah. 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 It's, 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 um, I, I, I don't know if I would, I think the only aspect of this that's a revenge story is, I mean, Babidi does get her revenge on the charlatan, um, because he, he gets his in the end. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And she does... But at the same time, she does get some revenge on the king, yeah. when you think about it, because he's sending out all those witch hunters to kill people that we can assume she's related to or she knows, and so her revenge is making him feel pain so that her family doesn't get hurt. But she doesn't really make him feel pain. I... We're going to go to another Merlin example. Mm -hmm. I... I the, all throughout, if you've seen BBC's Merlin, Merlin's yeah. big thing is... If I can do things for Arthur and Arthur can learn that it's me and accept me as having magic, then he'll accept magic and he won't hurt other people who have magic. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of more what I was seeing um, here through what Babidi is saying. I mean, there's also the really funny parts where Merlin is being the old man Emerus and trying to make deals where he'll do something if um, Arthur won't hurt other people who have magic. Um, 
that's more what I was seeing, which doesn't feel like revenge to me necessarily. Yeah. It's it's just she's sorting it out. Like she's just, you know, she's she's ensuring that her people can be safe. Yeah. And putting things putting the charlatan in in his place, he's revealed to be a fraud and just threatening the king. I mean, she has to threaten him, but she does. She's essentially making the judgment of I'm I need to instill fear in him. It's like what Harry does with the Dursleys and not telling him that he can't use magic outside of school. It's like things will just be easier if they think they're going to be turned into a toad. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's a short-term solution kind of. Mm-hmm. But it but it works and uh I I think that there's the, but it is ultimately a story about outsmarting you know, and I, I, I would, I would, I agree with that completely. I would not call this a, a revenge tale, but, but Babbity is of of the right intelligence, and she's just such a cool, sassy character, mm-hmm. uh, who who's like a great heroine of a story, and but ultimately, like she just succeeds. She she survives. That's that's the moral of the story. She's like, hey, you're smart. You can survive. She's the Emma Thompson of these series of heroines. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and there you I go. think uh, the the idea that um, that it's uh, yeah, I, I I wouldn't necessarily call it revenge either. I think it is like you guys were saying, more of a more of a trickster tale. I, I suppose in the in the moment when Rowling was being interviewed, I I think she was just perhaps trying to quickly summarize the basic idea of the story um and maybe just misspoke because she, that that was before you know the, the stories have been been published too and i don't think a revenge tale really fits with the themes of harry potter so much as a trickster tale would i totally just remembered the thing that i wanted to say back in what did you want to say <laughs> to say that the horrific nature of what happens at the end of the Warlock's Harry Heart is the closest thing we will see to the creation of a Horcrux. <gasps> oh! Oh, gosh! Why? I didn't think it could get worse, and it got worse! Molaram Sigalam. <laughs> oh, my God! Kalima! Kalima! Oh, I'm so glad I, I got to sneak that in there. Uh, well, I'm going to sneak in one thing, too, to make it happier. Universal, call me when you start doing Babbity Rabbity as a show, and I will be your white rabbit wrangler. White rabbit. I want to be your white rabbit wrangler. Okay, okay. <laughs> the end. We want to thank you, Colleen, for being Aww, on this thank episode you. of Alohomora. You. Oh, this is so much fun. Well, and you were a fabulous guest. I had I had high hopes from your audition, and you definitely proved <laughs> all of them. You. Oh, thank Contributed you. excellently to to the to the show today, and we also have to ask because we're trying to get we're trying to make sure that the listeners know for future with the change in the format, was mm-hmm. this just as good as ostensibly being on a book episode on a main book episode do you feel oh yeah and i especially enjoy like these types of comparisons and comparisons to fairy tales we were able to draw like i love short stories and the amount of information you can get out of them so to me yeah i thought it was just as good as a book chapter episode well if you would like uh if you the listener would like to be on the show uh you can 
simply visit the Be On The Show page on the Alohomora main site. But also, there's a, a, a new way that you can contribute, which is to suggest a topic. And this is super mega foxy important, <laughs> because after we finish up Beetle the Bard and Fantastic Beasts and Quidditch Through the Ages... Uh, Alohomora, as we stated in our videos, uh, is going to be a general Harry Potter topic podcast. Um, so not only should you audition, like Colleen did, uh, to be part of the discussion, but you can actually pick a topic for us to discuss and submit those, and submit those using the... (laughs) the Alohomora website, and all the contact us methods, which we'll get into very shortly. But if you do want to be on the show, uh, no fancy equipment is needed. Apple headphones work, uh, headsets, that kind of thing, and all of that information is over on the Alohomora website. And if you want to contact us, contact us. We're pretty cool. <laughs> um, you can find us on Twitter at MN. on Facebook at facebook.com slash OpenTheDumbledore, Instagram at MN. Or at our website, alohomora.mugglenet.com, where you can download a lovely ringtone of our theme t- of our theme song mm. for free. And there you can also send us an owl on our audio boom. It's free. Just keep them under 60 seconds so we can play them on the show. And we should point out, too, before I get to our last bit here, that uh, while we are not including... Um, we're not specifically... Uh, including a place for um, recap comments during the school book discussions um, in, in these episodes. We do still want to see you guys commenting yes. on the main site. We have been paying attention to your comments and uh, you never know those comments. Uh, we did see a few show up in the show today um, just in general discussion. And we are just so glad to hear that you guys are enjoying this new format and this kind of rediscovering the joys of the tales of beetle the bard. And hopefully we'll also be able to kind of open your eyes with fantastic beasts as well as Quidditch through the ages too. But we definitely, it definitely helps us to know that's happening. If you guys head to the main site and leave us comments. Um, so please keep doing that because we are watching. Definitely. And, once again as a reminder please also keep helping us out on patreon you guys have been doing such a fantastic job with that um rosie and i do have a goal of to to uh, to reach a four hundred dollars we're very close to that in donations so that we can maybe put together a harry potter let's play because we do have a secret passion for the video games and we would love to share that with you guys um so that's definitely one of the potential perks of uh, donating on Patreon. Uh, you can sponsor that for as low as $1 a month. And again, as we mentioned before, there are some special perks that you can get with that. Uh, you can check that out at patreon.com slash alohomora. But for now, we are keeping our non-hairy hearts very close to us. And we are cackling <laughs> away to the bank at the end of this Ooh. episode. Uh with of tales of beetle the bard and examining that one i'm michael harley i'm eric skull and i'm allison sigurd thank you for listening to episode 192 of alohomora open the crystal casket
Yeah, in the in the um, French uh, uh, French version, the translation comes out to "c'est la fête," which means it's a party, it's a party. <laughs> <laughs> that's a little literal. Obvious, obvious, obvious. Obvious, obvious, obvious lyrics, lyrics, lyrics. Yes. <laughs> so we're having a party. So so everybody's dancing and all is well. It's it's.